Between the 2nd of April, 1888, and September the 17th, 1889, a dreadful fear descended over the streets of London. No one who saw that face lived, except one small child whom he spared, because she was his own flesh and blood. There was another murder. They're looking for Jack the Ripper. It's you. The records tell us that the Ripper killed nine times. The curse lived on into a second generation of terror. Damn it, Pritchard, you've got a possessed being in your home, as savage as any wild beast. These are the streets. And these are the women. And this is the girl who inherited the hands that Jack used. <laughs> anyway, and then she said, <clears throat> and besides, no one in the rest of the world has the slightest knowledge of or interest in Mr. Fallon. <laughs> oh, Good times. Oh, Good times. oh, shit. We're, uh, we're recording. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your co-host, and I am sitting here with my co-hosts, Allie Chapel and Paul Farrell. Everyone, how are you this evening? Good. How are you? Doing I good? am. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I always mention on this show how we uh, we don't really get much in the way of reader comments, but we 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 did this past week, and it was fun. And people should check out our Twitter account, specifically the replies to uh, to have a bit of a guess. Not for nothing, Damian Thomas, great though he may be, looks exactly like fucking Jimmy Fallon. I'm just throwing that out there. It's a fact. It is fact. Well, isn't that a tired? A joke that everybody I mean everyone's always talking about that Paul if I thought you meant that I'd say go fuck yourself <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, that's, fair. Here. that's fair you know it, it led to some new friends that entire exchange and so uh, I'm I'm happy it happened more or less so it's fine but anyway we are not talking about twins of evil this week that was last week's a picture no this week we are talking about b picture hands of the ripper and frankly I can't wait to dive in but before we get there let's go ahead and do the normal thing and uh let's chat some recent watches Allie, what have you seen in the last week uh, so I've been uh, re-watching Buffy. Nice. And, like Ooh, Nice. Because ha- I've been doing so much work that like I can't really focus on like a full movie. So I'm just like, I'll just re-watch Buffy. Buffy's good background noise. Can I ask you a weird question concerning Buffy? Sure. How weird I, are you getting? Well, I love, <laughs> I love Buffy. I really do. I Back in the day, I was all about Whedon. I watched Buffy. I watched Angel. Uh, and I tried to do the super nerdy thing. I was collecting the box sets. And I even tried to get down to switching between discs so that I could watch Buffy and Angel in the exact order that they aired. So, you know, on the rare occasion when they actually would cross over, it would kind of work during my, my watch, if that makes sense. Uh, love Firefly. Love Serenity. Love all that. Haven't revisited Buffy in ages, and part of me is a little bit scared, too, because I'm just wondering, is there anything in that older show now, like, now that we have that kind of new light on Whedon, does it cast any of those older episodes in a in a different light, in a stranger light? Is there anything that you see in the show, rewatching it all these years later, where you're like, oh, okay, I, I can see, 
I can see the hands of the creator there, as it were, or not at all. Um, I'm only like maybe halfway through the second season so far. Like, no, because I have been watching that like in mind, being like, "Oh, Joss Whedon's a piece of shit." Yeah. But the only one that really comes to light is like all I can think about is Charisma Carpenter and how he was like, "Hey, you should get an abortion." That's all I can think about whenever she's on like mm-hmm. any part of the show. I'm like, "Oh, you poor baby." Yeah. What the fuck? Like, That's not I, yeah, fucking yeah. cool. So I keep thinking, like, is this when you're pregnant? Is this when you're pregnant? Like, <laughs> like, hey, Joss, be a better fucking writer, like every other writer has ever done in the history of fucking television, and write around it like you wound up doing anyway. Yeah, or just have her, like, constantly holding books in front of her belly. Who fucking cares? <laughs> <laughs> like, she's always just carrying, like, a box for no reason. Like, <laughs> like I, I just don't understand. It's like, I look, I, I love movies, I love television, but at a certain point, you have to keep in mind that it's just well, movies. It's just television. Like, th- this woman wants like, a child, and you're trying to fucking, you know, micromanage her actual body and life. That's so fucking icky. Like, yeah. That's that's gross. But I mean, so far, like, the assholeness hasn't really showed up through, apart from just feeling sad for charisma. But I mean, it's such a cute little show. Like, I feel like it's easily been like three years since I've done like a rewatch of it. I'm just like, oh, look at all you little babies. Look at how small David Boreanaz is. Like, oh. And little I don't, know, I don't know that I ever thought of him as small. <laughs> he was pretty ripped, he, wasn't he? Well, he was he was always in great shape, but he had kind of like that lanky cut <laughs> vampire thing happening in the early days. And now, like recently, yeah. he looks like, you know, buff army dude, you know, kind of. Yeah. I don't know. Didn't he didn't <clears throat> he do like some military show once? Probably. He was on that bone show for He's like in bones. I just, I never saw Bones. I just remember the jokes about Bones that Ben Affleck made in the town. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my only frame I, of reference. It's, uh, the non-Buffy thing I like him for is Valentine. That's the one I always go Valentine to. Ever. Valentine I Forever. Agreed. I'm glad people have come around on that movie. Like oh, yeah. it was, it was Finally, so easy right? to hate on that. Right? Back it in took the day. way too long for people to catch up to Valentine's awesomeness. Yeah. It's, uh, Luckily, as... everyone ubiquitously all agrees that Urban Legend is amazing, right? No question there. Unquestionable. I would Unquestionable. Say. Unquestionable. Right, Jinx? <laughs> right, See, right? he can't question it. It's he can't question it. Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. There Still you got go. Um, Buffy, needed so it, I've needed only... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to... Yeah, that's fine. I've only watched Buffy all the way through one time. And I did it in college, and I loved it. Uh, and I watched Angel kind of at the same time as well. I hear you. I hear it. Hear you. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I loved I loved the the Buffy experience. You know what, Jinx? You are just really pushing it. And we just started. Okay, we're like we're like ten <laughs> minutes in. Already super high. Um, no, please, please. But uh, uh, now you're gonna do it again. But that's fine because it's kind of funny. Insert cricket noise, right? <laughs> Uh, Paul was upset no, about I, the cricket noise. I didn't. It it wasn't a slide against you. I thought it was it funny. Was just, I, I'm not just upset about it. You, you seemed hurt, and I'm sorry. I was hurt. Um, no, I, I I love that show. I you know I I think Buffy was one of those really great like long form plot type of shows. Like I, I really like how the mythology it crafts, and I love the characters and and how 
nobody's really one dimensional how they'd bring back villains and stuff like that um yeah, I just I was always really impressed with the inventiveness of it. Um, I think Angel as a show is a lot more trouble for me. Like I think season one is barely watchable, but um, I like I like a lot of what Angel does, and I will admit it coasts a lot on the good faith of Buffy. Uh, but it goes to some cool places, and the final season's really good. Full disclosure, I I think I may have seen like one or two episodes of Angel. I just had oh, no okay. interest in watching a standalone David Boreanaz show. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the problem with season one is it's like, ooh, this is not working. But eventually, like the show gets populated with like really, really great side characters, kind of like Buffy. Yeah. You know, like uh, and, and once that happens um, and the show really leans into that, like I guess that would be probably sort of like two and three ish, um, you know, then it, then it kind of gets really good, but it, it just, it, it's a weird show that took a lot of stumbles and falls, but that was maybe part of its charm. But yeah, Buffy, Buffy was, was great. So that's, it's Buffy fun to hear you watching it. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I adored all of that stuff. Like I said, I, uh, I will say Allie, like if you did want to give Angel a shot, Paul is right. The first season is, it's. I, I actually think the pilot is pretty strong, and then it feels like, I don't know, it's very Monster of the Week, but not in a charming way whenever Buffy did that. But I will say it's worth watching the first dozen episodes because it culminates in, um, well, hell, I don't want to spoil it for you, but l- let's just say that there is kind of like a trademark Whedon shocking moment that those first 12 episodes build up to that's genuinely kind of affecting I think um yeah and it tells you what you're in for with Angel Uh, because Angel as a show is a lot more willing to do crazy shit like than Buffy ever was and Buffy did crazy shit as far as like the side characters go Paul I agree with you too like Alec what you should do Paul tell me if you think I'm wrong about this Allie, watch the first handful of episodes, see if you dig Angel, like, at all. But most importantly, skip ahead. Just read Wikipedia, catch up on some synopses, and join the show when Wesley comes in Mm -hmm. from Buffy. Mm -hmm. When Wesley comes in, and especially, like, the Wesley-Fred relationship, like, that becomes the beating heart of the show, and that's when it becomes really, really watchable. In fact, it's kind of weird as much as it's, I mean, fuck, the show's called Angel, and it's about Angel, but really the show is about all of the other characters surrounding him. And it's totally worth jumping on at that point, I think. Yeah. All right. I mean, it's, I realize now it's on Disney plus so when I'm done this, I'll just start. It's on Marath- Disney plus. So it was, but that's it, where I'm watching that. Is it really? That's yeah, crazy. Five seasons are on there. Oh, wow. uh, Fox. That makes sense. I oh guess. yeah. 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 I just didn't. Yeah. I just, it's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. That's weird. Um, Paul, I would throw it over to you, and I'm about to anyway here in about 25 seconds, but uh, I, I have an opportunity for a segue, uh, which, by the way, you can knock down and I'll cut out after if you don't want to do it, but uh, I, I think it might work. Just going to say, this past weekend, HBO Max premiered Clint Eastwood's new movie, Cry Macho, so I watched Candyman again and uh, <laughs> for the third time. So uh just going to throw that out there. I've already talked about it. But, uh, I uh, I saw Candyman. I saw the new Candyman. Finally, yeah, is why he did that. Um, <laughs> here, here's I thought a lot about this. 
this 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 was something I put in a lot of yeah. Here it comes. Here it comes. Ah, Candyman. I, I'm I I have to be honest. I was disappointed by it. I I know I, I don't want to be a jerk. I don't like like not saying really positive things about movies. Um, and I know that some of it is probably my expectations. Um, I had like insane expectations for this movie, which isn't fair to the movie. So I really do need to see it again. Um, and I plan on giving it like a little bit. And when it comes out on Blu-ray, I'm going to like pick it up and watch it with my wife and give it another shot. But for me, it felt, um, and it's hard to talk about without spoiling it, especially the, some of the issues I had with it. I, I felt like a lot of it was really underdeveloped. I felt like it was a really quick movie. Like it threw a lot at the wall. Um, and I don't know that it went far enough into any one of its concepts for it to feel as powerful or as impactful as the original film. Um, I think it's obviously dealing with a lot. I mean, it deals with the same thematics and uh, through a 2021 lens, so there's a lot of, you know, sort of social issues and things that it's attacking that obviously come from a, a different perspective than mine. So I don't want to necessarily comment on that. But it didn't resonate as strongly, particularly, you know, like his the body horror stuff that the movie deals with was very slight. Like it's it, it sort of pseudo focuses on it and then it kind of goes by the wayside and it comes back when it I don't know. It just none of it felt super developed. And it also like it introduces a whole lot of new Candyman mythology. Um, and this is probably my biggest issue with it, which is a weird thing to be annoyed about. But it's like it it's so focused on on distancing itself from the Tony Todd Candyman while at the same time wanting to be a direct sequel to that movie. Like within 10 minutes, we're talking about Helen Lyle. And yet it, it posits this entirely different candy man and, and sort of suggests that there are, there have been a whole bunch of different candy mans over the years. But if that's the case, like, so one example I have that really annoyed me was, okay, so if, if the candy man they're thinking about was sort of this guy from the seventies, in this movie, which is contemporary, why is it in the 90s they also weren't thinking of the 70s Candyman? Why were they thinking of the Candyman from the 1800s? That it just doesn't it doesn't really work. And and if you're going to introduce a bunch of convoluted mythology very very quickly, like you and and want it to be in line with the first film, like so much so that you're going to reference characters from it you have to put more work into that making sense. Um, if there, if there are plot holes, I mean, I can, I can look the other way on a lot of things, but if, if you're going to like throw out a ridiculous amount of like exposition through dialogue regarding mythos, and it just doesn't really track, it's going to constantly pull me out of the movie. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, now, having said that uh, it was beautifully shot. It was really well made. Um, I, I appreciate its ambition. I like that it tried to do a whole lot. Some of the kill sequences were pretty cool. Um, and I like the ideas it was putting forth. I just don't think it was all that well executed. That's that's my opinion. Oh, man, Twitter is going to savage you. That's okay. I, you know, I didn't tweet <laughs> it out. 
I, I just I just kind of said I was watching it. I, I feel bad. Weird. I feel I literally feel bad about feeling this way. No, well, you shouldn't. You what shouldn't. You shouldn't have to like every movie. No, no, I'm just kidding. I like what is weird is that and Paul, you and I texted right after you watched it. Uh, actually, a couple of parts during it. I could actually track your progression as a viewer over the course of like, what, two or three tweets. Um What's weird is, is I can't argue any of the points that you've made. Like, I think I like the movie. I'm I'm certain that I like the movie more than you do. Sure. But at the same time, like, I agree with everything that you said. Yeah, 100%. Especially all the stuff with Tony Todd. Like, that's just for us. Like, unless you went into it knowing the franchise, you're going to be like, who who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I actually would have liked the movie more had it just been a remake. Like, just re. <laughs> just remake it why like it really annoyed me that it was like oh we're gonna we're gonna give the fans what they want and make this cool like direct sequel but then we're gonna like blow a bunch of shit off and but that doesn't work you can't like pick and choose things from that movie if you're making a sequel to it and and this is like a really nitpicky nerdy thing to be annoyed about this is i I feel like one of those like characters in like a star trek convention parody where they're like in episode 4f207 you said this but in episode 57219 you said that that doesn't make sense you know i don't want to be that guy and i'm sure i'm coming off like that but we're talking about two movies (laughs) you know we're not talking about a ton of content um and this is a movie that is so hell-bent on reminding us of the first film like it constantly brings it up so if you're going to do that, then you need to, you, you need to embrace it or you need to just move on. And I, it, it just, it kept annoying me. And I think that made it hard to enjoy some of the new stuff it was doing. And I also think like, it's one of the rare movies I think could stand to be about 15 minutes longer. I think yeah. it's missing exposition um, or, or, or just something character wise, especially that third act, that third act just, flies by and i i don't like when it ended i was kind of like oh oh okay all right so i don't know i i'm gonna as i said i'm gonna distance myself from it a little bit i'm gonna rewatch it i'm hoping to like it more and maybe come around on it um i don't hate the movie i i know i came off as predominantly negative but that was more my disappointment talking i would give it like a three out of five stars which i don't think is a negative rating but you know i i had i had some issues no, I get that. I, I think, you know, what's weird is that it doesn't really serve, you know, you said that it was a direct, and uh, I know the movie is still relatively new, so I'm not, I'm still not going to dive into any spoilers, which you're right. It does make it difficult to talk about at length what the disappointments are, but what's weirdest to me about the film is that, you know, it was billed from everything. I'm, I'm actually glad that it wasn't a remake. Like I, I think if you tried to remake that movie, you would be setting yourself up for failure. When they announced that it was going to be a spiritual sequel, I was like, all right, you know, I don't quite know what that means, but yeah. Okay. As long as you're not rewriting the events of the first movie or trying to redo them, as long as you honor what's come before, like uh great, you know, I thought they were going to take kind of a Halloween 18 approach and I think they probably thought they were going to take a Halloween 18 approach in a way. But what you ultimately have with the movie is a film that doesn't really work as a sequel because we don't have any of the characters uh, from the first movie that we cared about, you know, to anchor us. You know, well, there is one returning character, but she gets all like two minutes of screen time, even though part of the trailer well, and marketing like... is built around her. But the the other main thing is that it doesn't work as a sequel. It doesn't work as a reboot either, because could either of you imagine 
anybody coming in off the street uninitiated, having not seen the previous movie, sitting down to watch this film and understanding what the fuck is happening? Yeah. I The other thing, and I don't know if this is a spoiler to say or not, but to me, if you're going to do the thing where the Candyman character evolves generationally, um, which is what the movie sort of posits, um, and you're you're not wanting to use Tony Todd. Why invoke? Why, why bring in a character that looks exactly like that? <laughs> right. That like to the, to what he's wearing and, and not just use Helen Lyle. Why would you not just use Helen Lyle? Like, I, like, why would that not be the person? Well... Like, like, I mean, that's that it just that was the thing I kept thinking throughout the whole film. And I and like I realized that maybe saying that's a spoiler because it's like, oh, well, the reveal, I guess if people think it. But I don't think anyone would go into that movie thinking Helen Miles, the villain. But uh, if you did, I apologize. Um, uh, she's not. But like that to me would have been the most logical way to sequelize that film in a, in a meaningful, obvious way. Sure. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. I just there, there's little stuff, but I, I have to get past that. And and if if the movie had been maybe more compelling and make a little bit more sense with the character progression and how he's like slowly decaying, um, I I would have maybe liked it a bit more. But again, even that felt not fully fleshed out. It was like, oh, we're doing this body horror stuff, but they but we didn't see a whole lot of that, and it kind of went what from. It- you know, yeah, it went from 10 to 100 really quickly. Like, we didn't get a lot of, like, in-between. Um, and, yeah, ultimately, it doesn't really matter either way because of what sort of occurs. And I, I wonder if there's something missing in that regard, like, in terms of that progression. So I, I keep thinking, like, maybe there'll be some director's cut or something that hits Blu-ray. Although everything I've seen does not look to be the case. But I, we, I, we, we shall say. I will say without, I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to get into it too, too much, but just from what, I won't say what little, well, yeah, from what little I know, like the initial version of the story before Nia DaCosta came on and rewrote it, it originally stood as just a screenplay written by Jordan Peele and Wynn Rosenfeld, his writing partner, and um, The Hive was not part of the story, The Body Horror was not part of the story, and um Helen was actually the villain. Uh, And in that way, it was a direct sequel to the original movie. And honestly, that sounds far preferable to what we got, because what we got ultimately is something that's half baked. Like it's not a first draft, but it plays like it's based on a first draft. You know, it's I I wish there had been none of the hive stuff or I wish they had gone much further with the hive stuff, because as it is, it's just kind of like you get a sense of that mythology, but you don't understand it at all. And not in a cool way where it's like Lovecraftian or, you know, you, you get the feeling that there's something just out. No, I mean, when the entire plot revolves around what is happening and the progression of a specific, well, again, spoilers, but a thing that's happening to our lead character, then you should probably have your rules in place. And ultimately, yeah. like, I, I feel like when it comes to the hive, when it comes to that subplot, it's not, merely confusing it feels confused you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so anyway yeah it didn't didn't really work for me it, it was you know a little disappointing but that happens we all you know we all have our disappointments that happens from time to time yeah um so. speaking of disappointments i watched prisoners of the ghost land 
Oh no, that was disappointing. Uh, uh well, yes and no. Um, I all the things. You know, I, Nicholas. Allie, have you seen it yet, Paul? I know you haven't. No, but I worship Nicholas Cage, so like. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to see it. Or at least it was. <laughs> so, well, he, here's the thing. I, I'm going to give it a recommendation because I think people should check it out. I, I you know, just the outset, I want to say fucking Nicolas Cage, man. Like, oh, yeah. Willie's Wonderland, where he gives a mute performance as a animatronic demon beating badass in just a pure gonzo grindhouse 70s throwback, just purely fun movie. And then he goes from that to Pig, where which is this just marvelous drama where he gives what is maybe his finest performance. It's either that or Leaving Las Vegas. It's one or the other. And they're neck I don't know, man. Don't count out adaptation. I still think well, adaptation adap- is... Adaptation's a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, You're right. His performance uh, in that movie is so damn good. Sorry. Don't no, you're fine. Like leaving Las Vegas to me is the like the gold standard of cage sure. for me. And sure. like Pig is right up there. Then you get to Prisoners of the Ghost Land, where he is playing. <laughs> you know what's strange is that people always talk about like Crazy Cage and how he can go to eleven sometimes. You know, he can he can give a performance like he does in Pig. He he knows how to, you know, rein it in and be marvelous. But then there are times when he completely cuts loose. And what's strange about Prisoners of the Ghost Land is that Nicolas Cage is not at eleven in the film, but the movie decides to go eleven for him. And so there's this weird I maybe that's a good thing because he kind of if you could imagine Cage grounding a crazy movie rather than just sending it into the stratosphere that's kind of what's happening. Um I don't know if either of you are familiar with the plot such as it is um it, it takes place in kind of a not even the post-apocalyptic future in that the entire world is affected but let's just say a stretch of the world uh in Japan is kind of living out its own post-apocalypse, as it were. Uh, Cage plays a bank robber who is released by the governor of this small town, played by Bill Mosley, who has fashioned this town into basically aesthetically everything that he likes, which is everything from, like, uh, you know, uh, feudal Japan to the Old West, the American Old West. And so you have uh, samurais walking around carrying samurai swords, but you also have guys in dusters and cowboy hats uh, slinging you know, six shooters. It's all very strange. Um, anyway, Mosley frees Cage's character and outfits him with a suit <laughs> laced with explosives at his neck, yes. his arms, and his testicles. And tells me he's five days to basically go into what's called the ghost land, which is this, uh, it's a stretch of land just outside the area of the city where there was like a nuclear incident. And so you have mutants, kind of mutants, but mostly just crazy people, uh, living on the fringe. And apparently this guy's granddaughter has, uh, has made her way. She tried to escape. She made her way into the ghost land and it's believed that she's captured. So cage is sent out into the wasteland to retrieve the granddaughter and bring her back. And if he doesn't do it in five days, uh, he will blow up. Now the thing is, oh, is like, so it's like escape from New York. It's Paul. If David Lynch went on like a Coke and acid bender and decided to like smash together a movie, you know, like a flick inspired by Escape from New York and Mad Max Fury Road. Prisoners of the Ghost Land, like, would be pretty damn close to what that movie would be. 
I think. Wow. Like that's oh, okay. And but I think you're sick. selling me on it though? That's like at first you sounded disappointed. Yeah, you saw you didn't like this movie. Well, here's the thing. There are moments of the movie which are fantastic. Cage is that again, this is this is one of those movies where it could have gone very, very wrong. And instead, Cage gives a great performance. He is so much fun in the movie, and he underplays a lot of it, which kind of works. You know, he he's more Snake Plissken than wild-eyed crazy guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the action is a lot of fun. The final third of the movie is a fucking blast. But there are long stretches of the movie where the film just has its head firmly planted in its own ass. Like it's it's there are stretches which are borderline interminable. And so you got to wade through that stuff to get to the good stuff. You really do. So that's why I'm giving it like I'm still recommending it. I still think it's worth the ride, but I think you should brace yourself for those stretches. Like just mm. kick back, maybe have a drink yeah. ready and just know that you're going to have to uh to just grin and bear it at times. How long is it? Uh, it is a long 90 minutes. Okay. I was going to oh. say if it's, if it's got long stretches, I'm like, well, hopefully this thing's not like two hours or something. Cause then I could see it being a tough situation, but 90 minutes. Yeah, that's fine. Well, Paul, it's, I'm telling you that 90 minutes is going to feel like two hours <laughs> at times, at times. Uh, but no, it, it is, it is worth watching. Cage is great. It's, it's beautifully made like the, the aesthetic, like the visuals. It's gorgeous. Um, and, uh, I will say that it has maybe, and I say this without any hyperbole whatsoever, maybe one of the funniest moments that Cage has ever pulled off as an actor, uh, in his career. Oh, like, wow. Hands oh. down. And that, and that's not just down to him. That's down to the editing. That's down to the writing. That's down to the moment. But there are, let's just say this, and this is not going to spoil a thing. I promise you. It involves two men kicking one another, uh, uh, in the testicles and, a character's reaction to that. And it's just, it's a howler. It absolutely is. So, uh, but yeah, no, overall, like thumbs up hesitantly, but I would say definitely check it out if you get the chance. All right. Sounds good. I'm on it. All right, Allie, back to you. What else have you seen? Oh, legit. All I've been watching is Buffy. Oh, (laughs) and then I, in non horror world, I watched that a million little pieces movie based off the, book oh the 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 james Frey one like the one that oprah was like you're a liar and he's like well some of it happened (laughs) (laughs) i remember that book was such a big deal when it came out and then it wasn't even what's crazy is is that he was outed as kind of like a fraud on her show after she built that book up and to me it seemed like people wanted to read it even more maybe after am i remembering that wrong it seemed like it I don't know. It didn't seem like it hurt him much. It did not hurt him. Like, he did fine. He got a pretty sweet movie deal out of it. How is the movie? (laughs) Um, okay. What's his name? Aaron Taylor something? He played, like, Quicksilver, Uh, and he was... Aaron Aaron Taylor Kickass. Yeah. That guy. Uh, I feel like this is the first movie where I've really just been like, holy shit, you're, like, a really fucking good actor. You're right. Like movie, the he he's never been bad, but he's never really been given the opportunity to, you know, like Quicksilver wasn't asking a whole hell of a lot from him. Like no. Godzilla wasn't asking much from him. 
And neither were the kick-ass movies. Like, they were like, cool, just come here and be this awkward teen. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, yeah, no, it's it's good. It stays pretty true to the story from what I can remember from reading it back when I was, like, 16. And, yeah, just a lot of really good acting. And Billy Bob Thornton's in it as Leonard. And I'm like, oh, I love you, Billy Bob. Yeah, Billy Bob, Billy Bob is a great actor. I don't know that I would ever want to meet him or work with him. But he just seems like the kind of guy who, like, if he wasn't super famous, he might be a racist. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you do get that from him. Like, he's probably a shitty guy, but, like, he's a super good actor. So we we look past it. Let him do his thing. (laughs) He's probably the kind of guy. You're right. If he hadn't. If he hadn't gone Hollywood at a certain point due to his talent, like he, yeah, he seems like a guy who'd probably have a MAGA hat. It, he'd be, you know what he'd be? He'd be the kind of guy who'd have a MAGA hat, but he'd keep it hidden, like in a drawer somewhere. He'd never wear it, but he'd be proud that he owned one. Yeah. Ah, true. Uh, Billy Bob's <laughs> already listened to this. I still love you and will watch everything you're in, man. <laughs> Did you ever see that interview with him uh, that he did for a Canadian – it was a Canadian radio show, but they actually filmed the thing too. And it was for his band, and the interviewer made the mistake of mentioning that he was an actor. And so every question he was asked after that was just like this fucking incoherent ramble until they eventually – until the interviewer, to his credit, just called him on it. And then they wound up getting into a little bit of a tiff after. But uh yeah, if you get the chance, just look up like Billy Bob radio show meltdown or something like that. And it's uh it's entertaining. It's an entertaining few minutes. Did you say that that was a Canadian interviewer? Yes. Shit up up here. We're just stirring the pot. <laughs> oh, not only that, oh, but he, uh yeah, no, he 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 threw a pot shot at Canada too when he was up there. He was uh he talked about like the oh fuck, what was it? I don't know if it was the landscape or the people or something, but he said something like, uh, you know, the, the, the area reminded of him of like mashed potatoes, but no gravy or something like that. It, it was just something fucking weird. Yeah. And the interviewer was just like, Oh, we have, say. we have gravy, sir. And then How did followed it up with like, Oh so- yeah, yeah. I forgot you all put fucking gravy on everything up here. Never mind. It, it was just strange, but, um, yeah, he seems like a dick. <laughs> I like how this just turned into us ragging on Billy Bob Thornton because of how he probably seems. <laughs> Based on no actual evidence or anything he's said. Well, hey, done, hey. He probably just sucks. He donates to charity all the time. Yeah, he's One probably person. like a saint. He's yeah. like the he's nicest probably, guy in the world. Probably. He's, like, he's listening to this and crying. Like a single tear is falling down his cheek now. Because you know Wait, he's a listener. You know what's funny yeah. is that he actually, in the midst of one of his rambles, one of the things that he rambled about was uh, – you know, like so, the guy asked him about like the formation of the band and he launched into this long monologue about how we, when he was a child, he read famous monsters of Filmland. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you don't know, it's not outside the realm of possibility well, he could, that he, he listens to a, to a horror podcast. Maybe he's a hammer fan. Billy Bob, if you're out there, I liked one false move. I liked sling blade. Um, and, uh, I don't know, maybe the interviewer was a dick before they started, uh, recording. I don't know. Benefit of the doubt being he, what it is. Maybe did. Billy Bob's okay. <laughs> <clears throat> all right so paul what else have you seen 
Um, well, I've, I've watched a few things. Uh, I mean, I could either talk about uh, Ramona and Beezus based on the Ramona Quimby series by Beverly Cleary, or I could talk about James Wan's Dead Silence. Which one's more, more appropriate for the podcast? Dead Silence. Are you sure? Because I could talk about Ramona and Beezus. Genuinely, Paul. Which yeah. is more horrifying? Uh, I don't know. I cried a lot during Ramona and Beezus, so. But I'm an emotional guy. I, I'm very in tune with my emotions. Did you cry during Dead Silence? I never once cried during Dead Silence, though. Okay, we'll what? talk about that one. Um, all right, I'll talk about Dead Silence, because yeah. that's what that's what the people want. Um, so Dead Silence was like the exact opposite experience of watching Candyman. <laughs> it was a movie I went into thinking, like, <laughs> this will be fine. You know, fine at best. And I watched it, and I was like, holy shit, this is like maybe my second favorite James Wan movie. <laughs> like, I thought it was... I thought it was amazing and it was and it was the perfect, 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 perfect chaser to Malignant. Like, I can't even imagine a world where I didn't watch that after. I mean, it's when you see Dead Silence, you're like, oh, okay, this this is Malignant. This is this is where that comes from. Like, it's that kind of movie. It's it's all these different horror tropes and ideas and sentiments smashed together in a crazy sort of mix up of like gothicism and seventies horror. And then also like early two thousands horror, like it, it has all of these crazy like things about it. Um, and it's just unapologetic in how insane it is. Uh, and it's wonderfully made. It's super, it's kinetic as hell. It just, the thing just moves uh, it's atmospheric, moody, like the performances are across between like completely over the top and hammy. I mean, it's got Donnie Wahlberg in it for God's sakes. Um, and, and it's just, it's just all over the place. And then where it all goes is so batshit insane that you just have to smile. I mean, look, Jinx knows I am a little hard sometimes on on mr james wan i'm a little hard on him and it's man, not just because i'm out there man just all your I secrets just, tonight. it's not because i don't like him or because i don't think he's a good horror director but i think sometimes you know he might get a little bit more credit for certain things that he possibly deserved in some of the bigger titles but man yeah. seeing these movies seeing these movies seeing dead silence which which is weirdly one of his like less popular movies Oh, it's so good. Travis. Is, I'm like, I'm like, no, this guy deserves a ton of credit. Like if I had seen these, I think I would have been, well, cause I'm not a huge, like insidious guy. Um, I, I'm not a huge conjuring two guy. I love the conjuring one. Like my, I really love the conjuring, which up until these last two movies was my favorite. Uh, but now that I've seen malignant and dead silence, I think I like them both better than the conjuring. And it's not because I don't think that, I think The Conjuring might be a better maybe made film, but these two movies tap into what I love about the horror genre more in some ways, because they're just so untethered and so insane. And that's the kind of thing I want to see from, from him. That's, I think he's just so good at that. And there's not many directors that can pull off that kind of insanity. I mean, he really gave me like some Sam Raimi vibes with these movies with just how untethered he is and how just wonderful it is. And you watch it and you're like, 
this shouldn't work. This should not be good, but it's so damn good. And the fact that he can do that makes me just want to see him do more of that. I felt like I got a little bit of that in Insidious, not the bulk of the movie. The bulk of the movie feels like, you know, and it's so weird to think that at the time when Insidious came out, Juan was not known for that kind of movie, that supernatural jump scare, you know, big haunting set piece sort of thing. You know, in a way, Insidious feels like kind of a run up to what he would do with Conjuring. But there is kind of a connection to me between Dead Silence and part of Insidious and then eventually Malignant when it comes to the lipstick red demon dude. Like there's that sequence near the end where it's playing that gonzo music and he's bouncing around in his little lair. And it's just like, and a lot of people point to that as being like one of their least favorite parts of the movie. And I'm to me, I'm just like, fucking let him go further in that direction. Like this is the most interesting stuff in the film. Um, I'm so excited. I like, I'm excited for you to watch uh, Death Sentence. I'm very curious yeah. to see what you think. I, about it's that. in the mail. I ordered it. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I loved it. Uh, Juan is definitely climbing my my ranks in terms of like modern horror filmmakers that I was being really hard on. So, uh, <laughs> you know, look, see, this is this is proof that I can I can uh, I can come around. We you can know, all can, change. You can grow as a human. I can grow as a person. I still don't. I'm I'm still not a huge I mean like his saw is like one of my least favorite saws I'm not I mean that's my hot take I'm not a big fan of the first saw Jinx and I have argued about this many times um like I think it's like his franchise stuff that sort of like gets in the way for me like I like his crazy stuff I'm not a big fan of his like popular franchise stuff but dead death sentence to me is the movie that kind of marries his grindhouse horror sensibilities with the action director that Hollywood would eventually exploit with Furious 7 and Aquaman. But to me, it's so much better than either of those movies. Like Furious 7, in a way, like anybody could have directed that movie. But at the same time, there are set pieces in it where it's like, oh, that's totally the guy who did the garage sequence on no budget in Death Sentence. Like I see him in that 200 million dollar car movie you know like yeah. it's it's kind of cool for that but um i don't know i'm, I'm really glad you dug dead silence i, I think it's yeah. a movie that needs Loved more it. love it is more people need to love it yeah and plus so at that point when dead silence came out i remember it came out one year after saw like so within a stone's throw of one another you had saw two also with donnie Wahlberg, and you had dead silence and dead silence uh spoilers for a fucking 15 year old movie uh ends with <laughs> with a big twist and a really recognizable piece of music. And it's like, oh, that's what this guy is. Like, he's he's the twist guy, you know. Uh, you, you do the fast cutting and the amazing music in the final two minutes to wrap up, you know, the film. And uh, I don't know, he wound up not being that guy, and I, I'm, which is good. But still, like, <laughs> I feel like I feel like Dead Silence is kind of like the redheaded stepchild of his filmography when it should sit closer to the top. Yeah. It should. It's a great movie. And I love a good horror movie that incorporates a poem about someone because that's all the exposition you need. Yeah. So true. So true. And that one's and good. The Mary Shaw one. The reveal, the, I won't spoil it, even though it's an old movie, but the reveal at the end, like the crazy fucking reveal. I was just, I was like, I was like, yes. This is, I was like, I was like congratulating the movie out loud. I was like, this is great. This is, this is perfect. This is, you could not have a better 
revealed to this movie yeah, than, than this a- insane thing. <laughs> uh, I will say, Paul, when you watch it a second time, what's amazing is when you see. Uh, OK, if we're not going to spoil it, it when you see that character for mm-hmm. the first time in the film, mm-hmm. watch his head when the scene ends. They are clever enough to have the. OK, so there's a character standing next to him. Yeah. And as the scene ends, they step away. And when they step away, just for a second in the background at the edge of the frame, you see his head start to lull. And it's just the I'm like, well done. Like the fact That's that you awesome. did that for people watching the movie the yeah. second time around is just yeah. Yeah. I did not. I did not see that coming. Like, I, I thought <laughs> I figured out a couple things about the movie. I was like, nope. And like, because I feel like he does. He does like um, and I don't even like calling it a twist because in some ways it's it's not a twist. It's, it's just sort of revealing what was happening. Oh. But like he figures out these these sort of reveals that are just so insane that you couldn't predict them. You know, just they're so out there and so bizarre that the like, the rational so... mind wouldn't yeah. ever go to that place. Because you're like, well, no one that wouldn't happen. Like that that's just not even a thing I would think of. And I think that's what that's what made Malignant so special. Well, I mean, a lot of things made it special, yeah. but but that element of it made it even better. And then, like, the same thing can be said about Dead Silence, because on top of that, it's, it's already a really great, moody, atmospheric horror movie. Um, so, I mean, you know, you, you add that on. And then I love the scene with, like, all of the dolls and the glass cases coming alive. I thought that was really great. It's just, it was such a fun movie, man. I love that movie. Anyway, that's so good. a great one. Um, so I watched the other film in the Ghostland franchise this weekend after, uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland with Nicolas Cage. I, uh, I hopped over to Shudder and watched, uh, Incident in a Ghostland. So, uh, Incident in a Ghostland. Yeah. And I gotta tell you, I have no idea how those two movies are tied together thematically, <laughs> plot-wise. Coincidence. Okay, it's a coincidence. It it's a double. coincidence. He's being funny. The oh, coincidence was... is that I did watch them pretty much back to back, but it wasn't really even intentional. So I thought they had a canon. Like, it seemed legit. <laughs> How am I doing I mean, If they do a crossover, oh my god. Like, that's that would be insane. That would be a weird, weird movie to cross Oh my god. With. You know what? Okay, all we, we're joking, yes. But I will say that there are two characters in Incident in Ghostland that might have walked right out of the Nicolas Cage movie. So there is that, you know. There's there's a case to be made. I'm not going to make it, but it's there. Um, no, Incident in a Ghostland is Pascal Loger's fourth film after uh, Saint-Ange and uh, Martyrs and Tall Men. And um, I don't know, like St. Ange is really interesting as a as a first feature. It's definitely worth watching. It's beautifully made. It's not – personally, I don't think it's successful narratively, but it's still totally worth checking out. I think Martyrs is a fucking masterpiece. Um, the Tall Man is beautifully made, really well acted, and um, just still not great. I don't know. I didn't care for it. But uh, – Incident in a Ghostland to me is the closest he's gotten to the level of martyrs um, he's gotten before. I, I, it, it's maybe a what a three year old movie at this point. For whatever reason, I had, uh, I just never caught it, and for the hell of it, I spun it. And uh, damn, what a film! Yeah. Like it is fucking stunning to me. Weirdly enough, I think part of the reason that I didn't check it out back in the day. 
uh, there was a little bit of static regarding its release, and I didn't really know quite what it was, uh, but it just – it was enough to sort of put me off watching the movie or at least seeking it out given that – you know, given his last movie and the fact that people seem to not care for this one so much, I just kind of let it you know, fall off my radar, and I really wish I hadn't because it is a great damn movie. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it out there, just a uh, bare bones, like uh, I know I probably could be spoilery, but I'm not going to. Uh, just in case there are any listeners out there who, like me, didn't check it out for whatever reason. But Incident in a Ghostland concerns a couple of uh, teenage girls who are moving with their mother to their deceased aunt's house in the middle of, uh, what is it, like the Midwest, I think? Um, and they, they've inherited this house that's full of creepy dolls, which is – that could be a movie in its own right. And um, in the course of their first night there, a couple of intruders break in on them. And uh, it becomes a home invasion movie for about five minutes. Um, the mother fights back. It looks like they get the upper hand. And then you cut to so many years later when one of the girls has grown up to be a successful author uh, celebrating the release of her new book. And just as she is, uh, you know, hitting the touring circuit, she gets a phone call from her sister begging her to come back home, which, weirdly enough, is the same home they were attacked in. For whatever reason, one sister and the mother stayed there all these years later. Yeah, and- it costs a lot to move, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Moving's expensive. Yeah, yes. dude, don't shit on them because they had to still live there. Okay, not for nothing. <laughs> if that happened to me in that house, I would, I would travel cross-country, I would live out of my car... I would not say another night in that fucking place, especially with the dolls. Like that should have been that Eddie Murphy bit right at the very beginning. You walk in, you see all of the dolls. You'd be like, it's too bad. We got to go, you know? (laughs) Um, And then on top of that, you know, there's the home invasion fucking hell. But um, no. So she goes back home and she finds that her mother is taking care of the sister who unfortunately could not get beyond the events that happened that night all of those years ago. Um, she is, you know, mentally quite broken from the events of that, that one horrible night. And, um, and then strange events start to occur and that's all I'm going to say. And that's not the most, uh, I'm sure that's not the most enticing, you know, synopsis I could give listeners to actually want to check it out. I get it. But at the same time, what makes the movie special is all of the crazy places that the movie goes and all the surprises that are in store for you. And I don't want to ruin any of them. I I would just say that in addition to being beautifully made and incredibly well acted, like the movie, I mean, it, it, it's, if you've seen martyrs, you kind of know what you're in for. Like the, the movie is going to bloody your nose by the end of it. It's, it's brutal as hell. It's unbelievably intense at times, but it's grounded by a great deal of heart and two really strong female characters at its center who, I mean, have to go through a night of hell to get to the other side, but it's just, God, what a film. Like it, it impressed the hell out of me. Um, it reminded me, you know, I, there are all of these little touchstones throughout the movie. Like, um, you know, part of it feels like a fairy tale. In fact, the uh, the two intruders at one point are referred to uh, as a witch and an ogre. Uh, you know, it's got a little bit of Texas Chainsaw. It's got a little bit of dolls, and not just by virtue of the fact that there are creepy dolls in it. Like, it even goes beyond that. Um, it, it's just, it's so smart in how it juggles all of those references and kind of synthesizes them into this really effective mean-spirited as all hell, but ultimately really redemptive story that um, 
I think if I could go back to 2018 and view this movie back then, it almost certainly would have made it into my top 10, uh, top five probably. But uh, I can't say enough good things about it. If you haven't checked it out, definitely hop over to Shudder and uh, watch it ASAP because it is it is a fucking knockout. All right. Is, is my... the list. Have, have you seen have you seen that one, Allie? No. Um, yeah, I, I watched it, gosh, probably a while ago, probably like a couple of years ago, maybe. Um, when, like around the time it came out, I got the uh, Arrow Blu-ray. I imported it because I had heard it was a good movie. And um, I loved it. I thought it was, you know, I know. Yeah, I remember. There, I don't remember what it was, but there was something about it that was like controversial or something. Wasn't there? Like some people well, didn't like it for some I reason. I looked it up. I looked it up and it's so the two things that I found number one, there is um, so there are two lead roles, but they're played at, you know, by teenage actresses and then, you know, obviously adults later on and the teenage actor who plays the sister who ultimately stays behind in the house. Her name is Taylor Hickson. Mm-hmm. There was a sequence where, uh, and it's quite awful. You can Google it and see the images if you want. It's it's although if if you're like me in that you can handle limbs being lopped off and bodies being cut open and people being eviscerated on screen, but you get squeamish at the sight of real blood from something as simple as a paper cut. Maybe don't Google the images. But uh, Ms. Hickson, unfortunately, during a sequence. Um, she was meant to be pounding on a glass door. It's for a sequence that comes near the end, I believe. And uh, the director, Pascal Loger, wanted her to beat on the door, you know, much more frantically and push her body up against it. And it was checked with the producers, apparently, to see if it would be safe. Uh, they were given the okay to do that. She did it. The glass broke when it should not have. And oh, she no. fell through it, and it cut open her face to a quite crazy degree to the point where they said that um one of the 80s had to like practically hold her face together with napkins Uh, i feel like i've heard this story so she they did like loads of surgeries i think they used silicone they did all sorts of things and i mean ultimately it it was a disfiguring scar you can see pictures of her today and she's still i mean obviously she's a beautiful young woman but there is a noticeable scar like on her face, which is fucking awful. And um, she did sue the production. I think uh, from what I read and I think tellingly, she did not sue the director, but she did sue the production and the producers. So, so far as negligence goes, I don't know if Loger was at fault, but it seems like he wasn't held responsible, if that makes sense. Uh, So that's horrible. There's like a team of people in place though. That should have really double checked that. Absolutely. Like that's like in theory, like yeah, like the director should check, but like that's technically like not really his job. That's kind of the producer who has the insurance and is like, yeah, we can totally do this stunt. Sure. Just, just if you're the producer, walk up to the fucking glass and pound on it with your fist and make certain that it's not going to give. Like if you're going to ask that of your actor, like it's fucking nuts that it happened. And it, you know, I mean, that's that's a scar for life, you know. And she is. She's an actor whose job it is to be the face of, like, you know, productions want to, like, it's, it's fucking terrible. Um, so I understand if there was some flack there. Um, I did read a review that took umbrage with the fact that one of the villains is ostensibly a trans, like, 
mm, female. Okay. So, so I get that. Um, sure. Apparently, sure. some people took you know uh, issue with that. Uh, weirdly enough, the thing that there is a set piece near the end of the movie uh, involving that character in a field, and I don't know if it's just because of how it was shot or how it was designed, but to me, it almost seemed like it was a visual analog to, uh, you know, Leatherface in the first Texas Chainsaw, and he, in a weird way, even more so the next generation, where it seemed like it was more a reference than anything. But but I understand if people, you know, weren't keen on digging the movie because of that specifically. Sure. I, I will say, yeah. But overall, I mean, the movie still worked like gangbusters for me, and I, I thought it was great, even for that weird sort of background stuff. And obviously the horrible thing that happened yeah no that's unfortunate to hear all of those things um and i understand why people would uh would how that would impact their enjoyment of the movie um for me i mean i'll just echo what you said not to belabor it um yeah it's a it's a punishing disturbing movie (laughs) uh it is it's raw it's emotional um it's it sticks with you. It's just, it's unrelenting in every sense of the word. Um, and yet there's this emotional core, this kind of beating heart beneath it all that you're just really interested in, in following. And I, I found it sort of interesting that throughout all of the, the just horrific shit that was going on, there was this like inner strength that the characters were kind of harnessing. And that was, that was really sort of, heartening and powerful and and cool to see develop and grow even in this like awful situation that you know you can you can hang on to like something emotional and powerful and and use that to sort of fuel you to not let horrific things defeat you you know um so i don't know i i really liked it i haven't seen it like i said in a couple years so i i can't it's not fresh in my mind but i i did really enjoy that one yeah and i will We'll say just one final word on it. And again, I don't want to get into spoilers for people who haven't seen it, but uh, Paul, I'm wondering if you would agree with me on this. Like the, one of the things that really stuck out to me about the film is the notion that, yeah, it's sort of the stance that it takes on the power of storytelling, not the way we traditionally see that theme, which is as a, you know, somebody who consumes, you know, storytelling or entertainment or art, but in this case, somebody who creates it and how it can be really cathartic and how it can be, uh, how it can provide comfort and protection, you know, during our sort of uh, most vulnerable moments, as it were. And I thought that that was really interesting. I've never quite seen that in a movie like that before, you know, and I, I, I just yeah. I really appreciated it. it. It could have been just a very simple bargain basement like home invasion movie or, you know, it could have been primarily concerned with just brutality. And it definitely has that in spades, but the movie has a hell of a lot more going on under the surface than that. And uh, again, that's why I think it's probably, you know, it, it hews much closer to martyrs, I think, than his other work. And it's definitely worth checking out. If, if you're a listener out there and you've seen martyrs and you loved it, definitely seek this one out. Yeah. All right. So that is mine. Shall we go ahead and jump into some, uh, some ripper hands? I think it's time. Yes. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and queue everything up. Tell you what, everybody out there, while you're queuing this up with us, I know you're not, but as you do, I'm going to provide a brief non-spoilery synopsis. And afterwards, um, just because it occurs to me, like listening to somebody's back, like 
we make references to events without actually explaining what's going on, and, which would be fine if you were actually watching along with us, but we know that most of you aren't. You listen to this just as a podcast, and that's completely fine. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to provide more of a spoilery synopsis right after so that you at least have some context for some of the things that we talk about later on in the movie. So, <clears throat> non-spoiler review, or rather synopsis, <laughs> As a young child, Jack the Ripper's daughter witnesses him kill her mother. As a young woman, she carries on the murderous reign of her father. A psychiatrist tries to cure her with tragic consequences. I didn't write that. That comes from IMDb. That's about as basic a synopsis as you could give for this particular movie, I think. Would you all agree with that? Yes. Like really just boiling it down to the essentials. Now, if for whatever reason you don't want this spoiled... um, and want to watch the movie while we provide a commentary. I don't even know how that would work. But in any case, if you don't want to hear the spoilery synopsis, skip ahead 30 seconds. Jack the Ripper returns to his home in Whitechapel and murders his wife while their young daughter Anna watches from her cot. Anna grows up with fake medium Mrs. Golding, who forces her into prostitution. Anna's first client, M.P. Dysart, makes her a gift of a jeweled brooch. She seems transfixed when it catches the light and summons incredible strength to skewer Mrs. Golding with poker. John Pritchard, a doctor intrigued by the new technique of psychoanalysis, takes Anna into his care. When Pritchard's maid Dolly places the jeweled necklace around Anna's neck, she is once again transfixed. She slashes Dolly's throat with a broken mirror, impaling a shard in her neck. Anna returns to Whitechapel and is taken in by lesbian prostitute Long Liz. <laughs> Long Liz. Anna is Long Liz again- deserves... I'm oh, sorry. Long live, long Liz. Um, Anna is once again induced to kill, stabbing Liz in the eye with a clutch of hat pins. During a visit to a genuine medium, Madame Bullard, Anna relives her childhood trauma and unwittingly reveals that the violent spirit of Jack the Ripper lives on. Pritchard is on the verge of identifying Anna's psychotic trigger when, once more possessed, she turns on him with a sword. Bum, bum, bum. So that is pretty much it so far as the synopsis goes. Everyone, are we queued up? We should just start to see the big beefy uh, gong-banging guy about to uh, let her rip. Are we good? Love yeah, I wonder what this guy's doing nowadays. Is he living off this money? Is he still doing this kind of stuff? He's, like, I'd like to he's living the sweet life on that gong money. He is. like whew. Yeah. I was going to say during your synopsis that I wish Long Liz had been given her own franchise, like her own film franchise, because yeah. I was very entertained by everything she did. <laughs> yeah. Long Liz does Dallas, you know, I can yeah. see, uh, don't see know what, what kind of franchise it'd be, but, you know, it could be. Maybe uh, she becomes a detective and she solves mysteries in between prostitution jobs. I was going to say, would she be turning tricks while solving? No, yeah, maybe sometimes, but that becomes secondary. I feel like we're dancing in weird territory. Okay. Or a great territory. <laughs> or, great or, the, territory. or the best territory. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's start this movie. So ready to rip. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and press play in five, four, three, two, one, and play. All right. And I got to hit mute because people are hearing the, uh, the gong. So, uh, the gong, so. yeah. So this, as I mentioned earlier, was the second film on a double bill with Twins of Evil. What's weird is this film's budget was pretty much exactly the same as that of the A picture, uh, Twins of Evil. So I don't know. I, do you think it was purely arbitrary what wound up being the A picture and the B picture on this double bill? Dracula um, Water, and that's why it won. 
Fair I think enough. that I think it had something to do with the fact that it was a vampire. The other was a vampire film. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was that was sort of considered to be the A. This one, that one was also a little bit more like intuitive with like Hammer's creatives. This movie really outside of Ada Young had no real input from the Hammer sort of the classic Hammer people. You know, this truly was like an outside project the Hammer just funded, which they did a lot more of in the 70s, you know, because most of those guys were gone. Um, I think I'd read that somewhere um, that what was it? This was the period where and tell me if I'm wrong about this. Anthony Hines had already left. James Carreras was sort of going out and commissioning writers to come in with uh, pitches before he brought in Michael Carreras to sort of. I don't know, take a firm hand with productions, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, that, that career, the careerist transition was sort of in the process of happening. And this was like, you know, as we saw at the beginning, um, this was sort of when they had their contracts with rank and EMI. And, and it's interesting because they made two Jack the Ripper riffs at the exact same time. Cause this came out the same year as uh, Dr. Jekyll and sister Hyde. <laughs> which has like a Jack the Ripper element to it. And they, and, and they really hadn't done Jack the Ripper is like an interesting thing. You would have thought hammer would have done more with it. They made that one movie. Uh, uh, like, Room yeah. And like 49 or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, like, and then they did these two very different things, but hammer didn't really develop this script, you know, it was sort of brought to them and then they kind of, made it <laughs> and Sazdi, you know, again, even though Sazdi had directed for them, he was, he wasn't really like in the club, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I do want to make a quick note here. Um, I found this so fucking strange. Uh, the actor who played Jack the Ripper in this opening sequence there's no record as to who that was. Yeah, no one knows who he is. <laughs> not on the film. No one. He had a speaking part, but he was not credited. And uh, no one can track him down. No one knows who the hell he was. He was under makeup, obviously. So I love yeah. that there is, you know, in real life, we have no idea who the real Jack the Ripper was. And when it comes to this movie, we have no idea who Jack the Ripper was. <laughs> I, I love it. love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> I I adored that opening in general too. By the way, like we get a brutal murder. It's really upset. It's kind of full on slasher territory at this point, and and a little bit giallo, um, you know, with like the the weird sort of melodramatic music. Like the score to this movie feels like it should be in some like odd epic romantic film. It doesn't feel like a horror score at all, and and it makes the opening feel very like primal in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it really stuck with me from the get-go. Are, um, are either of you like me and that you were kind of fascinated by uh, Jack the Ripper as a kid? Because that, uh, I got to tell you, couldn't get enough of that. Like, I was I was fascinated with that idea when I was in uh, probably grade school. I think I concerned a lot of teachers. Um, and I blame it in part on that uh, two-part miniseries that Michael Caine did back in the late 80s. Uh, but what's weird is, like, during those studies, I'd remembered hearing something about how um, um, syphilis was considered to be a, a possible 
sort of originator for the Jack the Ripper murders. And, you know, at the beginning of the movie here, we have a Jack the Ripper who is obviously exhibiting the ravages of syphilis, you know, which I think is a pretty interesting detail. But um, I don't know. You know, like I said, it had, it had been considered more than once, I think. You know, for example, um, one of the suspects at one point was Prince Albert, who was believed to possibly be Jack with uh, – you know, Jack the Ripper with folks thinking that syphilis had maybe driven him mad and that's what caused the murders. And Jacob Levy or Levi was another who uh, some think had contracted syphilis from a prostitute, which they think, you know, which fueled his desire to kill prostitutes out of some sort of misplaced sense of revenge. But I don't know. I, I just think that was such an interesting note to put at the very beginning of the movie when there wasn't ever going to be any sort of follow up there. You know, it was it was just the writer pointing out that he was acknowledging some of these uh, more bizarre theories when it came to who the hell Jack the Ripper actually was. Yeah, that's really true. I, I appreciate that this movie isn't about like finding like, you know, most Jack the Ripper things is like is sort of an investigation on who he is or who he was. And I like that this movie is really not concerned with that. And it's more about like that legacy um, and then sort of like the inherited kind of sins of the past and like, you know, the, the, the trauma inflicted on a child and what the long-term repercussions of that are like the, the sort of scattered innocence that occurs. I, I thought it was like an interesting, unique way of handling what is a bit of a tried and true you know a tried story in that way yeah yeah and you know we talked about that a bit during twins of blood or twins of blood twins of uh, evil rather with uh you know that theme of the sins of the father you know and it, it's funny in that <laughs> following up blood from the mummy's tomb we now have another hammer film wherein our leading lady is both our heroine and our villain all at once yep i'm into yeah. that I'm into all of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is interesting because it's a very like a lot of the 70s films kind of go in that direction and they, they take on a little bit of a a more heady vibe and, and like emotionally like 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 Countess Dracula. You know, we talked about how it's trying to do some very complex emotional things like this movie is, too, although this movie is a little skeezier, right? This movie goes yeah. into some skeezier directions. And um, I got to say, like, is definitely a, it's a weird that this movie doesn't come. We've talked about this a lot, just like uh, slashers and where they come from and what gets counted as a proto slasher and what doesn't. It's weird that this movie doesn't come up in that conversation because it is a hundred percent a slasher movie. Through yeah, and through. I agree. Oh, hell Yeah. <clears throat> Um, and like some of the sequences in this are really, really great. Some of the slasher sequences are like super effective. Um, the gore is pretty good. There's a lot of blood. I mean, I have to say out of all the hammer films we've watched, this is easily the, like the bloodiest, like this is easily the one that shows the most. Oh, hands down. Yeah. And I mean, like you noted it, it as much as. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. This is totally a proto-slasher. And you know what's funny is that I've seen this movie before, and I don't think I would have ever considered it that. But something about watching it this time, after our conversation on Sister Hyde, you know, you watch this film, it's like, fuck, there are set pieces in this movie which prefigure gore set pieces in later slasher films. I mean, there, there, there are moments in this that might very well have worked in a Friday the 13th film. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I... 
I really, really, I, I don't know. So what? I guess we should talk overall impressions because, I mean, you said you've seen this before, right, Jinx? Yes, yeah. Allie, was this a first time watch or had you seen it? No, I've only seen it the time I watched it like two days ago. Okay. So what <laughs> what were your like what were your overall thoughts on it? I really like this. Like it's got a fun intergenerational trauma of just like passing on that evil, which I always love. I mean, that's a trope I can always get on board with, unlike last week when I'm like, oh, we get it. One of the twins is evil. <laughs> Yes, everyone knows that if your parents are evil, you are going to be evil as well. True. Sorry, Baron. But it's just like it's beautiful. It's stylish. I love this guy, uh, Porter. Is that his name? Yeah, Eric Porter. I played Mr. Pritchard. Dr. Pritchard, rather. He's so great. Like, he is. He's he's an interesting character, for sure. I uh, I heard in one of the documentaries that there was pressure to cast Cushing or Lee in that role. Ooh. And uh, Sazdi wanted Porter. I think it's a good choice to get Porter. I think he just, like, he owns this role. It feels very natural to him. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of leaves the movie without anyone recognizably hammered, you know? But it, yeah. it's kind of cool that, um, you know, and I mean, this film... So far as Hammer regulars go, like, it's not. It's mostly populated with actors known for their work in the BBC. And the same is true of Porter. He he had worked with Hammer before. He had done uh, the movie, which I admit I haven't seen, called The Lost Continent, but was otherwise known as a major name in television. He did, um, you know, like the BBC Two drama, The Foresight Saga, which admittedly I also haven't seen, but apparently was a deal. So, uh, no, I think he gives a great performance. And I got to say, like, Cushing would have been amazing. Lee would have been great. Um, but I'm kind of glad they went with this guy. It, it gives the movie a different flavor. It feels a little more removed from what we expect from hammer, which in a weird way kind of makes it feel a little more dangerous, a little, you know, a little less familiar in a way. I, I, I kind of dig it. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I agree with Allie that I think Eric Porter brings a lot to the role. Um, and, and I think his mannerisms are, are different enough and unique enough. I really like the Freud element, like how he's, yeah. this. he, he reminds me of, of the sort of like, um, very, fo- like, like the, the Jekyll of the two faces of Dr. Jekyll mm-hmm. or like Cushing in the, in the curse of Frankenstein, like a person of science who like really thinks that they can do something good for the world but they're going to have to crack a few eggs to make that omelet, you know, like. And that's like, what you had to do back then. All right. Sometimes. You yeah. People. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is, he is, I mean, forget Jack. I mean, Pritchard is the film's real villain, right? Like he is, he is to me, he's the heavy in the film uh, for that reason that you mentioned and more like he, he might seem sympathetic, but um, fuck this guy risks lives at the very outset in the interest of his studies, you know, later on, he lies to Anna and tells her there's nothing wrong, that she's dreaming it all up, which keeps her from getting real treatment. Yeah. And here he is. He's a man in his 40s or 50s it's who is obviously. Yeah. I mean, well, just the fact he's, oh, yeah, he's an he's older not... dude who is allowing himself to kind of fall for a 15 year old girl. Like, forget she Anna. 17. Like, I thought she was 15. <laughs> she... I thought they said she was 17. Was she two at the very beginning? Okay. I thought maybe. she was five at the very beginning. Has it been 10 years or 12 years? It's been 15. 
Okay, well, I don't. Like, know. I thought she was Tom. Okay. okay. Um, so I listened to it. They were talking about it in the commentary, and uh, Rig Jonathan Rigby said she was seventeen, but I don't. I don't know. Okay, um, my bad. This is a guy in his forties or fifties who is. I was treating... kidding. It's it's obviously <laughs> creepy. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, this Pritchard... girl as his patient, and it's like it's just it's for me. That like you got to tell me you didn't get the vibe that he was like kind of in love with her, right? Like, oh, he totally was. Yeah, like there, there's definitely he puts her in his wife's old room. Like there, there's definitely a creepy like I kind of want to be with you vibe. That he wasn't like going to totally act on, especially with how it sort of ends with mm-hmm. them kind of like die. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead, but like it's yeah, no, I agree that he is he's he is like uh, Frankenstein. He's the Baron in Curse. Like that's who he is. He's the he's the protagonist and the antagonist. He's both kind of. Do you get in the feeling though that Frankenstein was at least honest about himself? Like Frankenstein knew who he was. This guy thinks that he is the hero in his own story. Because and Frankenstein thought he, he was save this girl's life. I, I think, but I think okay, you're right. Frankenstein, I think Frankenstein thought he was doing something for humanity. He thought he was. He's. You're right. You're right. But he is self aware enough to know that he is doing dodgy shit. Like he he knows. Like this guy thinks he's a good man. Like, he thinks he's a genuine sweet man who's trying to do everything in the name of good. And it's like, no, 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 you're, you're, Paul, it's a conversation that you and I had early on in this uh, podcast, which, by the way, I think it occurred to me at a certain point, we are, if we haven't already passed it, we're coming up on it. Hell, maybe we're right on it at this very moment. But we're coming up on the one year anniversary of this podcast. Aww. It's kind of flown. Anyway, but we've talked about it before, especially early on when I would drink more. Uh, like the difference between being nice and kind. And I think Pritchard is really nice. You know, he he can walk that walk. Oh, what a, sorry to interrupt, but I love that shot. That's like great. the, the reveal of the door. Like the, 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 I mean, Jason <laughs> Voorhees might very well have done that at some point. You know, it's Man, that's so great. Yeah. I, 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 he walked in on her when she was bathing nude, like, oh, don't mind me. Yeah, that was weird. And the other thing about this movie stylistically, because we just saw a shot, there's a lot of like handheld photography in this movie, like like a lot more like um, on the run DIY filmmaking on display that we're not that we haven't been used to in Hammer. And it gives the movie in some ways a more immediacy, but in other ways it makes it feel a little bit less professional. But I also make I also think that lends to the danger. So I actually was just going to comment that I think this is and some of the later Hammer films end up adopting that style. Some of that's because it was the 70s and that was just sort of what was happening. But I feel like this was the first movie where I really noticed it. Yeah, yeah, I would. I I agree with you on the immediacy. I never got the feeling that it sort of. I don't know, undercut the production value or made it seem like a cheaper film. Like to me, it all, it, it all seemed very purposeful. Uh, and I like that about it. We've talked about that before with Peter Sazdi's direction, where he is a much more modern director than yeah. Fisher, you know? And I, I think this is his, I don't know if I would call this his best movie. It is, it, have fuck, it probably is his best movie, but I'll definitely say that it's certainly his most assured uh, outing as a director for Hammer. Yeah, it's hard because I really like Countess Dracula. Um, well, even Taste of the Blood a really is a great movie. Taste of the Blood's great. I would put, I think I would put both Countess and this above above that. But I like all three. 
Now, you mentioned earlier uh, Ida Young, uh, who's the producer on this film. This was her last yeah. Hammer production. She had uh, previously worked on The Vengeance of She. She worked on uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Taste of Blood of Dracula. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Taste of Blood of Dracula, and Scars of Dracula. And apparently she personally brought on Peter Sasdy, who obviously done Tasty, that counts as Dracula. And she did it like apparently she wasn't a fan of the source material and likely oh presumably God. the script. And she uh, she thought that Sasdy could save this material that she didn't much care for. And uh, I don't know. I, I think she made the right choice. And it's funny. This movie, in fact, would be the last Hammer film for both of them, though. Uh, I, I think Sasdy would uh, direct some of Hammer's television series in the 80s. But as far as feature films go, this was uh, kind of last hurrah for both of them. Yeah, we uh, yeah, Ida Ida Young is interesting, too, because she she was with Hammer for like de like the whole time. Like she was a second assistant on Foresight Triangle and she worked on Quatermass Experiment. She was she was kind of like with those key Hammer guys, but it was always hard for her, you know, being a woman at that time to break in to the actual production. But she was in with Michael Carreras and he was the one who ended up finally giving her a shot. But she like persevered against a shit ton of misogyny so she's actually a really cool figure in hammer's history that's really unsung um and and it's cool that she actually got to the point where she was a producer but yeah i think from what i read this was sort of the last one she did partially because she was just kind of done she was like eh <laughs> i'm good you know she had done a lot with hammer she kind of felt like she had done as much as she could do and I, th I think she was ready to work with other people i think she also saw the careers was moving on and the writing was on the wall for the company hey Allie. yes can i ask you a question i uh out of the three of us you are an actor how did the performances in this film strike you because up until this point in hammer we have had performances that have sort of run the gamut everything from uh you know a little more stagey a little more broad to uh much more naturalistic and i was wondering so far as Hammer goes, like what you thought of the performances in this particular film? Uh, I made note of this. So Porter and Reese, that's her name, right? Anne Reese? Uh, Angarad oh. Reese, yes. Yeah, not Reese, Anne. That's, maybe. that's not right. Um, I thought they crushed it. Like I th felt they really brought their A game, whereas everyone else, it's, they're okay. <laughs> yeah some of them are a little like you know chewing the scenery a bit but i yeah, feel like, like oh i'm sorry sorry as I, say, I feel like porter makes up for a lot of this like he really steals the show yeah i think you're right like they're both like i think they both ground the movie and it allows the supporting oh. figures to be a little more broad but they're so good like they're they're kind of the beating heart of the film they really are and just because like the what's the word I'm looking for? The pacing of this movie slows down a lot in scenes like this, where I don't really care about any of these actors, and I'm like, just get me back to Porter, like, give me some more Reese, like. I just felt like if you're gonna have these longer scenes that don't have a whole lot of action going on, you need to have a better actor. Yeah, yeah, or maybe <laughs> better writing, even. You know, the characters yeah, are so yeah, thinly yeah, drawn. Better writing could also help. <laughs> I will say. I did like that the Laura character was blind. Um, I thought that was kind of a cool thing. And I like that it wasn't like 
I like that she just was blind. There was no like plot reason for it. There was no tie in like, oh, this happened. And that's why, you know, that's why she it was just no, this is it. Like, I like that it was sort of a normalized way of looking at somebody with, you know, who who happened to be blind and they were just a regular character in the movie. Like, you don't see that very often. Um, And it also wasn't treated like a weakness, per se, um, or exploited in any real way. So I thought that was kind of a cool little element of the script that differentiated it uh, from movies of its of its ilk. Yeah. Yeah. So here we have uh, Porter retrieving, uh, or rather uh, Pritchard retrieving Anna. And uh, Paul, again, going back to Ida Young for a second, she is the one who cast Anga Rodriguez as Anna after seeing her in a television play, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, Hands here was her film debut. And uh, I thought it was kind of neat. Uh, Anga Rod had consulted with her father, um, who was a professor of psychology at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, about various technical points regarding her character. And I thought that was neat where, you know, anyone else might simply have played the possession aspect of it, you know, just uh, go wide, crazy eyed and, you know, have fun with that. But instead, like, I love that she actually did her research for this uh, character with an affliction that's not at all based in reality, but she consulted her father, who was a professor of psychology to help her better ground her performance. I just, I, I, I love that story. I love that that was her approach to it. Yeah. And she's an interesting actress. Like I, I do think she has a, an, a quality to her that is, that feels different than the normal leading lady. Um, and, and she has like an oddness, uh, an otherworldly kind of stare. Like I could totally see her in a carnival of souls esque movie, like oh, wandering yeah. around, oh, yeah. like just in this vague, you know, distorted reality kind of way. Like she, she, and I think that's one of the reasons the movie works really well is that her performance lends itself to um, the kind of, uh, you know, the lost nature of her character's soul. I now wish there had been like a Hammer, like 70s Carnival of Souls remake. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, that would have been so good. Like, But you're totally right. Like, uh, what is the line from Carnival of Souls? I'm going to have to look it up because I don't want to fuck it up. But, um... Yeah, Candace Hillegas, she has this amazing line that was actually, um, oh, what the hell? It was sampled by uh, Lana Del Rey for a song. Um, and I'm going to forget what it was. Okay, fuck it. I'll paraphrase. But she says something like, uh, I feel like I'm not a part of the world. And it's, I could, you're right. I could totally see this actor like playing a character like that where she feels removed from the world around her, built around her, you know? Yeah. For sure. Totally agree. Anyway, Carnival Souls rules. I love that movie. Um, All right, and this also, with her performance too, it, I've talked about it a few times, and uh, uh, it, it's my own personal pet name for this type of movie, but it's one of my favorite subgenres. I don't know that it exists, but I, I'm, damn it, I'm going to make it exist. I'm recognizing it as such. But uh, Monster Makes a Friend. You know, like I'm thinking, Paul, you and I talk like the stylist once is totally that. Psycho 2 is that. I think in a weird way, Monster Squad is that. But this mm-hmm. one, like, I kind of. There's something kind of tragic and heartbreaking about the fact that this, you know, young woman has nothing and she latches on to the first friendship, you know, the first hand that's offered to her. And you get the feeling that, damn it, like, if the guy wasn't such a predator in his own way. 
Like maybe she could have broken free of her curse. You know, maybe if she weren't exploited in the way she is over the course of the story, she might have been healed or fixed. Uh, maybe a genuine friendship might have, you know, helped her overcome the beast on her back. But it just it, you know, this is a horror movie and it's a tragedy and it's not meant to be. But it just makes it that much more heartrending to me. Yeah, no, she was destined to be a murderer. I mean, look at who her parents were. So true. <laughs> you just you have no choice if your parents yeah, murder people sure. you basically sign a contract that says like you have to do it that like, is the rule of the horror movie you know. teething walking stabbing you know just got to hit all the beats yeah, yeah. True. teaching that child what do we I, think of dolly i'm Dolly's obsessed cool. with that headpiece I, I i love that this actor swings for the fences with that character i i I love her like she she is no human being that ever existed i don't think but um (laughs) i i was actually oh go ahead no no you go ahead oh you're fine no i i was just gonna say i was surprised when she died because she was so her character was so sort of big yeah i was like oh well the only reason she would be this big is if she was gonna stick around for a while you know like try to make an impression and then when she was offed pretty much immediately. I was like, what What? What was the point of this? But I still kind of appreciated it. When she goes to grab the uh, the necklace, it like you can imagine the counter on the top of the screen, like 15, 14, 13, 12, you know, just counting down to her inevitable death at that point. But I agree with you up until that point. Yeah, it's, you think she's probably going to make it, you know, she's going to be there for the long haul. Not, not, uh, not so much. That was definitely my impression. <laughs> all right. Do you all, I, I've seen the, I hear a dog. Yeah. My <laughs> boss. That's amazing. Oh, it's, it's awesome. Invite them to watch with us. I, I want like a, I want a cameo appearance. I want to guess. You're kind of getting one. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think of Pritchard here? Seeming so damn cold to his, uh, his son's fiance. Because he doesn't care. He's like, none of this is more important than my work. How dare you interrupt me? Yeah, that's that's a good take. I, I have to admit, I was very confused by that. Because I kept expecting the movie to explain it. And it just never does. <laughs> they no. never tell us why. Because he clearly doesn't like her. He's got a chip on his shoulder about her he the whole like time. He doesn't like the blind. <laughs> Do you think that's it? Do you think it's down Maybe. to her simply just being blind that he has like no use for her anymore whatsoever pretty much i mean if she can't see then how is she gonna cook and clean (laughs) my god wow (laughs) it's a backwards ideology over here Uh, she's not wrong though that is probably the guy's (laughs) thinking like she's not wrong she cannot no i don't mean in no i don't mean actually in practice i just mean it's oh my god i mean as richard goes like that's probably totally like how can he be of any help to me or my son? Yeah, I, I took it as like she's a distraction for his son. Like, I think he wishes his son would be more studious and follow in his footsteps. And clearly he's more of a romantic that wants to kind of leave the nest. And I think he resents that. But it, 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 I, I definitely like that the son seems to raise an eyebrow at his relationship with this young girl. Like, he kind of knows that, okay, this isn't right. Something's off about this. He knows he can't really do anything about it, but you get the impression that he's irked by it. What are jails called in Britain at this time? 
Do you want me to wake, make up like a funny British sounding word? Yeah, is that... I, I just want to know what the like early 20th century equivalent to the word jailbait is, is all oh. like, because that's a, uh, that's totally what's going on there. Uh, You're right. I would imagine point. at that time, British people called jails loopies. Ah, <laughs> oh, that good loopy bait. That, yeah. Never mind. Never mind then. Fuck. Throw him in the loopy. I've, I've made a mistake. I apologize. <laughs> They always have, but all of their words sound kind of adorable. Like, I don't know. It's how it is for me when I hear British words. Oh, I get that. Whenever they're like, I have to go to the loo. I'm like, oh. yeah, right. That's kind of cute. <laughs> you know what's neat about this office? They shot the film at Pinewood. And uh, obviously, like with all of the exterior sequences, we have these gorgeous sets of the uh, the streets of, uh, you know, old London, as it were, which apparently were the still standing sets from Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock yeah. Holmes, which neatly enough, uh, or coolly enough, awesomely enough, you know what, fuck it, featured Christopher Lee, which I think is kind of a neat little connection. Uh, I, cool. I'd like to imagine that, uh, you know, they, they appreciated the fact that it was in some way touched by Hammer Legend. But uh, this office that we're in, uh, there was a story that apparently the production would just bop around Pinewood and borrow standing sets. And uh, Pritchard's office here was apparently M's office from the James Bond films, like the, the Connery flicks back in the 60s. And I, uh, I, I just love That's awesome. I'm sure they didn't ask permission. <laughs> they oh, probably almost certainly. Well, they would wouldn't they... have gotten permission if they asked. No also, way. fuck Sean Connery. I'm sorry. But, um... Yeah, I didn't, this didn't is, mean to. That's, yeah, no, you need to at least once a show say that. Um, once a show. Well, yeah. at, at any mention, it doesn't have to be every show, but if he's getting mentioned, he's uh, he's catching a fuck you. Can can we talk about really quickly um, Mr. Dysart here, the, the biggest piece of shit in this movie? <laughs> that man is I mean, human, human garbage. He, to be fair to him, that mustache should warn everybody what they're in for with this dude. It truly should. It's so devious. It's a devious I mean, when they brought him in for questioning, I don't care if Pritchard was, uh, you know, got him off the hook or not. The cops should have said, fuck that. He's guilty. Look at the stash. <laughs> I like that. We don't like, we immediately know he's garbage because he tries to have sex with this underage girl. And then he's a dick. And then he slaps her around when she doesn't put out. And so we're like, okay, this guy, this guy's a monster right from the get go. And we kind of expect him to be the one murdered. Um, and then when he's not, you know, then we sort of think, okay, he's probably out of the movie now. And then we find out like he's a politician and we're like, oh, okay, that all tracks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's a politician. Okay. All right. And get it away makes with fucking perfect everything. fucking sense that he's in parliament. Um, and I, and I kind of like that little, little tiny bit of social commentary thrown into this, uh, Jack the Ripper slasher. Yeah. And, you know, to his credit, great performance. This is, um, Derek Godfrey and, um, he's, he's just marvelously slimy in this film. Yeah. So along the same lines of like the social commentary stuff, Ellie and Jinks, do, do you think this movie is saying anything about like, Freudian analysis or psychoanalysis, or do you think that's just a plot device? I have really firm thoughts on this, but I'll let Ali go first. I mean, like, I want to believe they were trying to do more and talk about it more, but 
just because of how the script is written, it feels like this is just a plot device to move things along and be like, well, this is why she's crazy and this is how we'll cure her. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's pure set dressing to it's me. Set dressing. Like it's, it, it's, it's, um, you know, it's somebody in the fifties making a movie about, uh, you know, nuclear power, but not really understanding it, you know, like, but golly, it'll make for a neat backdrop for the audiences. Like, Hey, wouldn't it be neat if we mentioned this whole Freud psychotherapy thing? And in that way, it'll sort of, uh, legitimize our story of a guy trying to psychoanalyze a possessed girl. Fuck it. Let's throw it in there. But they don't do. And keep in mind, it's weird. It sounds like I'm kind of bashing the movie. I actually genuinely really dig this movie, but in that regard, Paul, absolutely not. Like, I, I, I think it's nothing. No, right. Well, I think the only reason I bring it up is obviously one thing this movie, or at least I think it's obvious. I think one thing it's trying to do is create that sort of dichotomy between science and religion, right? Because, and, and not so much religion, but science and the otherworldly. Because on the one hand, you have people saying she's possessed. On the other hand, he's going, no, she's sick. And I want to understand that. And that's how we get to a cure. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I just say real quick, I'm so sorry, while it's on screen, uh, so we can skip past it. This was Angarad's first day on set. They made her first day her nude scene. And apparently, like, she, she, this pisses me off, she initially refused, though she was contractually obligated to, like, it was signed off on that that's what would happen, but she gets here, they make it her first fucking day. And so she initially refused and Sazdi rather than, I don't know if it's to his credit or if he's just was manipulative as all fuck, but rather than being the stereotypical, like bullying director, he asked Eric Porter to sort of take Angrad aside and talk to her actor to actor to convince her to perform the scene, which she ultimately did. And I just, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I, 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 yeah, I'm not keen on anyone bullying anyone. Co- contracts or not, if they decide at the end of the day they don't want to be naked, I'm sorry, but that should always be something they're allowed to back out of. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Jinx, did you watch the uh, Synapse documentary, The yes. Devil's Bloody Play thing? Okay, so you saw the sequence of that that talked about this? Yes. Did you notice... Because in that documentary, they tell that story and and they do some of it through interviews with Sazdi, who makes himself sound like he was being perfectly reasonable. Like the way he tells it, he's like, well, you know, I have daughters and I understood, but I was the director. As a father, I I knew that Eric Porter. (laughs) But then but then they would cut to inner like audio like of of, you know, on guard being interviewed about the same thing and her recollection was very different than his and her recollection made him sound kind of monstrous the way it was cut together at least i felt that way no i think you're right i thought that was really interesting the documentary gave us both sides of the story and i'm appreciative of it and yeah i think sasdi was unfortunately being not super cool about that no i I, was both anger into getting nude yeah, so I mean, I believe him when he said that he had Porter finally get her across the mark, as it were. But when he portrayed himself, you're right. Like, anytime a guy is like, well, I have daughters. So clearly, you know, it's like, ah, yeah. that's like saying, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. Exactly. Like, you, you can't you can't do stuff like that. And also, like, a person who isn't 
you know, has that problem doesn't have to say that, like, wouldn't ever say that. So, you know, anyway, it just, it, it did, I 100% agree, it, it rubbed me really the wrong way, and it's, and when I see that scene now, it's very, it's like, oh. Well, I, it is, and like, also, sorry. Underneath, no, I'm sorry, Allie, go ahead. I was going to say, the fact that he got Eric Porter to take her out into the hallway and, like, talk to her instead of getting the other woman in the scene to go and do that. Like, I bet Eric Porter's never been naked in a movie. He's not going to be able to relate. But there's a good chance a lot of the other women on set probably were. Yeah. I, and I wonder if part of it was uh, the fact that he thought maybe any other woman that he might have tried contracting on set to do that very thing would have said, fuck you, no, I'm not doing that. She shouldn't have to do it. And whereas the the other guy on set would be like... Oh, sure. Why not? You know, must must soldier on, you know, Uh, it it just it bugs the hell out of me that one, she was uncomfortable in doing it in the first place Two, it's meant to be an underage girl uh, in the scene who's nude in the first place. And three, it adds absolutely fucking nothing to the scene when you could have just had her buried underneath bubbles or shot it, you know, from different angles. It's pulled up to her chest or like there are other ways to have done that. She she could have already had a bath and she could be in a towel or something like that that scene could have been blocked in a hundred different ways that didn't require nudity and the nudity in that scene is so secondary to everything that's going on that it it doesn't enhance it in any way and i i will say too i mean just at, at the same time like dude i don't like, you know, hop on Twitter at any point, and you'll see somebody like uh, raising hell about anything that even remotely smacks of exploitation these days. I have no problem with nudity in film whatsoever. Oh, man. The, that is a great. Okay. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, As let's focus on this for a second. Everyone is cool about it, and no one's being dicks about it. Like, if that's their choice and they want to get naked, fuck yeah, let them get naked. Yeah, and that, maybe that, don't into it, it. That's not okay. And don't make it your actor's first day. No wonder she wanted to no. refuse. She's just meeting everybody for the first time, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah. well, into the tub you go. Just so be smart. I mean, as it depends on if they're like, because I have definitely been on sets where like first day that person's getting naked, and I'm like, cool, all right. So you're just, we've all known each other for about six hours now. Good stuff, good stuff. But if you're cool with it, then like, <laughs> sure. So we just passed up a yeah. pretty intense gore sequence. I read it something that it was incredible. Paul, you mentioned too, like this is this is the most explicit gore any Hammer film up until this point had. And I was doing a bit of reading. Apparently when the film was uh, picked up for the U.S. release by Universal, in order to appease the MPAA, they had to cut something like 16 seconds, which doesn't sound like a lot. But, I mean, it's like, you know, ultimately how much – how much did they cut out of like the early Friday the 13th movies? Like seconds matter in those scenes, you know? Well, and the Uh, weird thing was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, you watched the same documentary that I did. So you've seen the two comparisons uh, between the throat slashing and the stabbing with the shard of mirrors. So, you know, like, even though they only snipped a few seconds here and there, like it dramatically changed what is otherwise a pretty impactful gore moment. Yeah. And they did that. But the weird thing was like in the U S cut, like certain things were cut, but other things were left alone. And then like those things that were left alone in the U S were cut in the UK. So like <laughs> there were different, it, it's so bizarre, like what they focused in on, um, and in, in both countries, but yeah, and I agree, like it is a totally different thing and you can tell like the U S cut is neutered. Like it doesn't feel as impactful. It doesn't feel as intense. Um, 
you know, and then it's and and similar to that cut, like this is another one of those Hammer movies that had like a, a dramatically different cut for the television version like that they show on there where it's like they had to record, um, you know, this whole interview with like the author of the book explaining the mental state of the character. And so they put like bookends on the movie, like kind of how they shot a bunch of footage for like uh, Kiss of the Vampire uh in the u.s like they did that but um unlike those cuts the actual footage of that like burned in that 2008 fire uh at universal's back lot so like all that footage is gone and now all they have is the audio oh yeah i I mean it, it wasn't it wasn't great, I'm sure, because it wasn't like intended by the filmmakers, but it would have been interesting to see it. But you can you can listen to like the whole thing on um, I think both Blu-rays have it. I think I well, you have the Synapse Blu-ray, right? Jenkins? Yeah. Is that on there? The the audio? Yeah. The yeah. Cut? It does like it runs the audio with a little extra like a tape. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have the imprint version. Um, and I'm pretty sure the imprint version has everything that version has with the addition of a, a new commentary by Jonathan Rigby and Kevin Lyons. But anyway, how, uh, how, yeah, I was going to ask you how it stacked up again. Do you have the Synapse Blu-ray too, or just the imprint? This one, I just have imprint. I had the uh, Synapse Blu-ray of twins. So I was able to compare <laughs> those more directly, but I wasn't able to compare okay. the transfers. Yeah, I thought okay, I was that twins like the Arnold Schwarzenegger Dan DeVito movie, and I was <laughs> I was like, one, what is the uh, comparison? But also <laughs> the whole new news about triplets and how Tracy Morgan is joining the team is killing me. Wait, is that a thing? Really? Yeah, it got announced this week where they were like they're making a sequel to Twins with Arnie and Danny, and they what? found there, and it's Tracy Morgan. Ser- you- that is, I am so excited. I know. I back in the day, they were going to do it with Eddie Murphy, like in the '90s, and it just never yeah. happened. But he's just too busy and too popular. But Tracy Morgan's like, I always got roles. Like, let's do it. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I'm not doing anything. Let's go. Oh, I can't wait to see that. That's going to be great. Oh my god, it's going to be a perfect movie. That is that is that is pretty fantastic. Twins has a Twins does have a good Blu-ray release though through uh, Shop Factory Select. Oh, I know. Really, I haven't mm-hmm. seen that movie. Yeah. Just. Oh, it's phenomenal. My, I showed it to my kids. My kids really liked it. Oh, it's so good. I've been trying to find it on VHS forever because I thought it was a popular movie that it'd be really easy to find, but apparently everyone kept their copy of Twins, and now I can't find one anywhere. I mean, to be fair. To be Allie, fair. Okay, Ali, I want to ask you about that. This is, this is the point in the conversation where we digress. Um, and listeners out there, if you're relatively new to this podcast, that's what this podcast is. You get about 40 minutes of solid commentary. It's going to be hit and miss after that because by this point – the alcohol starts kicking in and we start digressing a bit. Now, Paul and I will never miss an opportunity to talk about physical media collecting. But, Ali, something I've noticed in your social media is that you, like you just noted, you collect VHS quite a bit. Is that right? Yeah, I, I love it. It's such a stupid hobby and i fucking like die for it well, no no it's it is a hobby that i'm like i used to go to uh conventions all the time back in the day when people could go to conventions i miss conventions god i want to go back to horror convention so bad anyway uh there are always like vhs dealers and loads of collectors like who swarm them looking for classic big box stuff oh, and uh, that's you, know, <laughs> you know like twins like you mentioned like vhs tapes that uh 
you know, sort of tap into their childhood nostalgia. And I was wondering what, like, as far as your collecting sensibilities go, like what sort of spurred you on to get into collecting VHS? I like, okay, so I am of the age where we still had VHS tapes that you could rent from the store and all that stuff. And then we, you know, got into DVD and that kind of took over. But I always loved VHS tapes. I love that they're like a little brick and you can just build a little world, like a little wall of movies with them. <laughs> like, and was... it was so good. And like during, I think like maybe just before the pandemic started, I started like sort of collecting and I was like, oh, I have all these old VHS tapes and like my grandma gave me her old VHS tapes. So I was like, oh, I have a little collection. I should really get into this. And now I'm in like 20 different like Facebook groups that are just for VHS tapes. And like, I'm digging through every like, like secondhand stores, discount bins looking for like golden, like some treasures. And I like, it's so much fun. What What's like that. your Holy Grail VHS? Is there like one that you're like really gunning for that you're trying to find or is it? Yeah. Uh, yes, it's twins. And if you happen to have it, please. <laughs> all right. All right. Good to know. I'm seriously no. checking eBay right now. Well, I'm sure it's on eBay for sure. I just want to find it in the wild. I get like a sick yeah, finding it in that. the wild. I get that. It's way more fun to just find stuff. I used to it, do that back in the day when I collected. Like I was and Paul, I was gonna ask you about this too, because I know you're a little bit younger than me, and I was pretty young when I made the switch from um VHS to DVD and uh like a moron. At the time, uh it it sounded like a great idea to sell off all of my VHS. And now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, I had some real gems in there. But um You could have paid some rent for like a year on that. Oh, those you prices. you have no idea. Like some of the stuff that I had I've looked at since I've run across at conventions and I'm just like, fuck. But um, you know, back in the nineties there was never any shortage, at least, you know, and I'm from like small town Ohio. But there was never any shortage of comic book shops and mom and pop uh VHS rental places. And uh when I got heavily into movie collecting, there was about a two or three year window where all I could collect was VHS. And I made a habit of like, you know, popping by my local mom and pop or popping by, you know, the the movie gallery or video update to see what was on its way out that I could buy. I would go to the little mom and pop that was also a pool supply store. Seriously, VHS rental and pool supplies like in yeah. one sort of in one location. One I mean, it's everything a person could need. I mean, for the summers, definitely. Um, and I would basically swindle them out of – I would walk up with like – I remember clearly a copy of Reanimator that was out of print. If you could fucking imagine a world where Reanimator was not readily available, that was about 1995. And I walked up to the counter holding this thing uh, with the, the VHS cover and everything. Like it was beat to hell, and I just – I needed it. And I was like – Hey, how are you? And I, I, I started doing like the salesman thing. That's how I could get in. Sometimes I would pass it along and be like, Hey, could you see how many times this has been rented in the last year? And they would give me a weird look and I just kind of like smile and nod and they would look it up and they'd be like, Oh, um, it looks like only twice. And I'd be like, yeah, that was me. Do you just want to sell me this copy? And I would, I would build my collection that way. And I, hmm. I kind of miss that thrill of the hunt. But uh, w would they more, more like most of the time be willing to do that? Like sometimes, sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, there were times when, um, okay, like for example, uh, Texas Chainsaw. There was a time when that media VHS was the only thing that you could get, and it was out of print before it went over to, I want to say like Pioneer. Back when Pioneer had like a very it small print. one. 
It was with um, Wizard Video for the longest time because I just sold my Texas Chainsaw Wizard Video version and got like 500 bucks for it. Holy shit. Nice. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so I, I would like to come up with it. that. And I would try and do the same thing. Like, hey, how many times is this rented in like the last year? Ha <laughs> They'd be like 20 and I'd be like, well, fuck. Uh, well, well, they're all me. Don't double check. <laughs> I rented it twenty <laughs> times. Don't check. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, Paul. I was going to ask you since you're you're a tad younger than me. Did you ever have like that VHS collecting bug, or did you go right into DVD? I well, I was, I did briefly. I I didn't have a lot of money back then, but I managed to a- acquire because basically. For a couple of years there, all I asked for for birthdays and Christmas was VHS movie movies. So like that's that's how I would get them. I'd have to wait for like holidays and stuff because I had no, you know, I was young, so I didn't have a job or any money at all. So it was just like whatever my parents would give me money, it's what I would spend it on. I probably had by the end, I probably had like two hundred and fifty tapes, maybe. Oh, so I mean, it was respectable. But you have to remember, uh, I wasn't like a horror guy. So most of the movies I had were like dramas and comedies. You're just buying Um, up all the copies of Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) I had a ton of like pretty great. I had a pretty good comedy collection, though. Like I had like every Bill Murray movie. I had all like the I had all the like I had like the Steve Martin stuff, like all the SNL people. I had all their movies. Um, I had. I had like a very vast uh, Disney collection. <laughs> I had all the like white clamshell ones with like every like all the Disney movies. I oh I did have um because do you remember Back to the Future was out of print the first one you could get two and three but you couldn't get one. No. What? Yeah, no. Back to the Future was out of print for years on VHS. What the fuck? Um, it was really yeah. Look, I don't know if you can look this stuff up, but I, it was because I I remember I couldn't buy it. You couldn't go anywhere and get it. And the only copies were like this old VHS that you'd have to get on eBay, like for, you know, ridiculous amounts of money. And I, it was like my favorite movie still is one of my favorite movies. And I wanted it so bad because I was, you know, it's like, this is like my favorite movie. I need to own it. I ended up getting my parents to buy it off eBay for me for like $150 uh-huh. at, that, at that time. Because it was the only way to get it, and I needed to own it. And I said, "I said, hey, can, can I have this for my birthday? If this is the only thing I get." And they're like, "Well, if if your uncle goes in on it, and this is all you get, then yeah, we'll get you, we'll get you this movie." And 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 it was early internet days. Um, so like there was, was so much disappointment of, in their voice, wasn't there? It was a bit of a chore to to go onto eBay, and they didn't really trust it, you know. Uh, they're like, I don't know. What if this like doesn't work or what if they don't send it? Like, and I was like, I have to have back to the future. So I, I, I bought like a $150 copy of a beat up back to the future that had tracking issues, <laughs> but I had it. I owned it. Tracking. Oh, that takes me back. Do you still own it? I, so here's the sad story. Um, <laughs> Well, I have many sad stories from my youth, but uh, one thing that one of the things that happened was I went off to college and all of my stuff was in my house. And while I was at college, uh, my dad moved out, sold our house, and I never found out what happened to any of my stuff. 
So I lost like eight, 18 or 19 years of everything I had acquired other than what I brought with me to college. Oh no. That and so I had to learn really early on in life that you can't get too attached to things because I lost all of my shit. Um, so yeah, so all two my I mean, as a collector now, like I had I had a ton of like all the you know I have like all the goosebumps books now and stuff. I had to rebuy all of those. I had them all. <laughs> I shouldn't have had to buy them again, but I had to go find them again because like they were in that house, and so we're close to three hundred VHS tapes gone. I don't know where they are. I don't know what happened to them. They're gone. See, that's uh, like a the, Paul. What I don't understand about that books, is, though, that's uh, that's like a super villain's journals. origin story. I had journals. Yeah. I had writings, original writings. I had a, an ac- tons of action figures and things I had collected growing up. Posters, magazines, you name it. All all of it gone. That no should have made you even more Spartan, but instead, I, it's for you know, I to be even to, more of a collector. I well, I try to be. I try to be reasonable about it. Um, and, oh, that, and, break, that breaks my heart. Oh my god. Oh, that wasn't the most heartbreaking. <laughs> I, I had lots of things. Well, and, and the for me, the saddest part was it was like the house I grew up in. I didn't get to say goodbye to it. You know, I didn't get to make peace. With it. it was just gone. You know, I was just it wasn't there anymore, and I couldn't go into my room and like. Anyway, I I, I really struggled with it for a long time. Have you ever gotten a chance to sort of drop back by, even to like peck on the door and see if like the the new owners will let you in? Yeah, because my dad moved like three blocks away. (laughs) I I fucking pass it to go to his house. And it, it, but somebody else lives there and, you know, I can't go into their house. I'm I'm convinced they ended up with that shit or they just threw it away. I don't know. Because nobody seems to know what happened to it. It, That's the worst. the long yeah i mean things were weird because like it's i don't want to get into, like <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to hijack this podcast and go, into, and go into the trials and tribulations of my youth well let me um, ask you one thing do you but, think there's any chance that you wound up rebuying like do you think part of your collection that you rebuilt is possibly made up of like those original items or at least would you like to think so oh almost guaranteed um of of a lot of the stuff that mattered to me, uh, the things I could rebuy, I definitely think, uh, yeah. I mean, I I have a spe- like certain things like movies I loved when I was young. Like I need to own every copy of, um, every edition of. Um, you know, I never rebought a VHS that I just kind of let go of, and I don't know what would have happened to those. I don't know if I would have kept them or if I would have tried to get rid. I think I it's more than likely I would have gotten rid of them at some point. Um, but maybe I think I would have kept some, you know, especially some of the movies that are harder to get, Oh yeah. but like, yeah, so there was that. The, the only good thing was I brought all of my DVDs with me to college at the time. So I didn't lose, which at the time was like the newer thing. So I didn't lose any DVDs, but my collection was much smaller, you know? Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so very cool. Anywho, sorry hey. to bring it. Sorry to bring it down. I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, it's all right. I'm gonna settle as a chainsaw. I'm going to get us back to this movie. Kind of. I was going to ask you all now that we're sort of uh, on this big oh, set piece with kill. another kill. Uh, I was going to ask you both. 
so far as Jack the Ripper movies go, you know, we mentioned that this is kind of a Jack the Ripper movie. We have a Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde that came just before this and Hammer's History. So far as Jack the Ripper and all of cinema, do either of you have like a favorite or are you kind of indifferent to that sort of subgenre? Or uh, I don't know what leaps to mind when you think Jack the Ripper movie. That James Spader film, Jack's Back, obviously. <laughs> wow. Deep cut, kind of. I, I wouldn't have thought kind of that. Of. Um, have you guys seen the uh, 1959 Jack the Ripper that Severin put out? No. Ooh, oh. Yeah. Uh, it's a black and white film. Uh, and oh. it's it's actually pretty grisly for the time that it was made. Um, it's a British film, obviously it's like a UK movie. Um, and it's, it was actually like banned for a really long time. And this release, when they put it out, they did it as like a black Friday special, maybe like, I don't know, two or three years ago, maybe longer. Um, but it's a really cool little movie. Uh, it's pretty provocative. It's, it's pretty ahead of its time like when we talk about proto slashers like it definitely kind of fits that bill it's not it's not as violent as something like this would be um but it's it's definitely worth seeking out it's that's one i always think of when i think about jack the ripper because i think it's like a undersung kind of movie okay i always kind of think of from hell yeah 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 because that's kind of the obvious one to think about yeah, yeah Heather Graham is just so good in it and I'm always kind of thinking about Heather Graham all the time she was very good in that I feel like she hasn't Love really gotten the uh the respect that she deserves as an actor uh, so- even though she's generally quite good no Heather I Graham's from awesome. hell too um Murder by Decree I've mentioned on this podcast before as well with Christopher Plummer playing Sherlock Holmes in a Holmes versus uh, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper story. It's very, very good. It's directed by uh, Bob Clark. So obviously worth checking out. Um, are either of you familiar with Time After Time with Malcolm McDowell? Oh, yeah, I, I love that. Movie. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> Which should have been the theme song to the movie Time After Time. No, I'm wrong. <laughs> no, uh, Malcolm McDowell plays H.G. Uh, Wells, and the time machine figures into a story that also includes uh, Jack the Ripper, who is played by Paul. You've seen it. Remind me, is it David Warner who plays him? Yes. Okay. Uh, there's Jack the Ripper miniseries, of course, with Michael Caine. Of course, there's like stuff like The Lodger and whatnot. But uh, yeah, Ali, I'm with you. Like I, I adore From Hell. Uh, what's weird is, is that movie is like a complete bastardization of Alan Moore's and Eddie Campbell's graphic novel, which is the size of a phone book and has like a, I, I want to say it's something like a 50 page index that includes every bit of research that they did to make certain that this graphic novel was as exhaustively researched as any, you know, academic book on the study of Jack the Ripper. Uh, and instead he just tells like a cracking story in graphic novel form. It's incredible. And then you get to the movie and it uses maybe 20% of the graphic yeah. novel, possibly, hey, you know, can, can I interject really quick on something very important that I just discovered? Yeah. Um, I was Googling Jack the Ripper movies. So <laughs> while you guys were talking, and I discovered a title called Terror at London Bridge. Have either of you ever heard of this? No, no. I haven't. It's from 1985, and it's starring David Hasselhoff and Adrian Barbeau. <gasps> In the film, 
David Hasselhoff plays a detective who thinks the ghost of Jack the Ripper came to uh, Lake Havasu, Arizona, when the London Bridge was ported over. And he's investigating a series of murders that he thinks are being perpetrated by Jack the Ripper's ghost. Well, that's legit. That's almost too legit to quit. It's an 80s slasher. And I feel like it's it's like number one on my must-see list right now. And here I am. And all out of alcohol. This again? <laughs> Doesn't that not sound like the most fun you've ever had in a movie? <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. Like, Paul again? Terror at London Bridge. I'm looking it up now. And it's, this is like this is this is Night Rider <gasps> era Hoff. It's on Holy Paramount. shit, it's on Paramount Plus. <laughs> I think Paul just um Oh my okay. god, it's on Yes, I'm I gonna love- I'm gonna go. I'll see y'all later. I'm gonna go watch this movie. No, I'm just kidding. I am gonna watch it at some point. I'm really excited. Oh no. Okay, so I typed in Terror at London Bridge in my just watched app, and I thought it was the first one that popped up, so I clicked on it and clicked on the link. Nope, this movie's called Terror at Blood Fart Lake. Also starring David Hasselhoff. <laughs> and Adrian Barbeau. Weird. Weird. Crazy coincidence. You know, um, one thing I learned in that in that documentary we watched was I didn't realize that Rory Ashton came on to do some effects work in this movie. Uh, that's pretty cool. So I guess that is another sort of classic hammer guy that was involved. Um, but I think he just did the needles scene, right, Jenks? Just the needles through the eye? Are, am I alone Are you- now? Question Allie? for you there. Hey, and I'm back. I'm sorry. I thought I heard a prowler outside of my apartment. Uh, oh, okay. okay. Turns out it was a couple of amorous raccoons. I apologize. Don't apologize for raccoons. Go outside and take photos. No, I feel yeah, like I need to, to apologize it. to the raccoons because I kind of... I, uh, I asked you a question, though, when, right when you left. So <laughs> it oh, was hell. weird. What was it? Um, no, I was just saying one thing I learned from that documentary we both watched was I had not realized Ray Ashton came on to do effects work at towards the end of production. Um, so I guess that's like another, you know, hammer person, but he just did, he just did the one scene, right? The needle in the eye scene. Yeah. It was just the one off. And apparently he was quite upset with, uh, for the amount of work that he put into it. Like, obviously it's, it's yeah. barely on screen. It's barely on screen, even in the uncut version. And I think he was kind of uh, crestfallen about that. And honestly, between, between the three of us, like it's fine. It's good. It's good for the time. Like it's, but I don't know. I I think the filmmaker, I think Sazdi was smart in not lingering on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I I thought it was cool. That he was involved. Yeah. So now we're really getting into it with film. We have Madame Bullard here, who is a, unlike the woman at the very beginning, she is a genuine medium and she is going to suss some shit out for us that, uh, don't think Mr. Freud could have. I think Freud would have been lacking here had he actually been a part of the proceedings. But uh, I don't know. I kinda, I'm kind of i a sucker for scenes with mediums. I don't know why. Uh, you give me Geraldine Chaplin in the orphanage or, you know, give me any moment in uh, da, 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 uh, fucking hell. What is the Nicole Kidman movie from the, the early 2000s? The, uh, the one? The, the others. Other. Thank you. I always want to say oh, The Innocents. Love which, oh, I mean, come so on. good. Um, yeah. D- mediums, horror movies, love them. I I really dig that this movie sort of begins with a seance where 
Pritchard's like rolling his eyes the whole time and sort of builds to a seance where he's like super engaged. Right. I, I think it's cool that through his sort of focus on using science to cure something that people think is otherworldly, he ends up coming to the the otherworldly and recognize and recognizing it as a real thing, as a legitimate thing that he needs to embrace uh, and that science in and of itself has to be able to coexist with such things. Yeah. Yeah, I do like that. It, it doesn't fully discard the notion of science, but at the same time, it does uh, it does lean pretty hard on, uh, you know, there's more to heaven and earth and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I dig that. Um, it's something I wanted to ask you both, and I don't know why it occurs to me at this point, maybe because he should have noticed, uh, but as far as really underlining the fact that there is a possession happening here, we see that transition when there's flashing light, when there's any sort of physical touch or affection or anything remotely sexual that happens to her. And then, you know, boom, Jack comes out. But when he does, we always see, I mean, you know, it's right there in the title, Hands of the Ripper. We see Jack's hands. We see these big sort of meaty hands that are obviously not Angarad's, uh, and they have those sort of syphilitic patches on them. Do you all like that choice, or do you think it's hokey? Do you mean like fashion choice? Because nah, he could be he could do better. <laughs> uh, you know, I I don't even want an actual answer at this point. It's not going to trump that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, Paul. What do you think? Do you, do you think it's silly, or do you think it's neat? Um, I think it's a little heavy-handed. I, I you know I mean the movie's well trying. Yeah, right. I know. The movie's trying really, really hard to to make sure we know that that it's sort of leaning towards possession. Um, I, I guess I would have liked it to be maybe a tad more subtle, so that way there was ambiguity as to whether or not she was, or more ambiguity as to whether or not she was being straight possessed or just you know has the same sort of uh, tendencies that her father had just internally you know she just might be prone to fits of violence yeah because her dad was a murderer we've been over this right of course <laughs> but i think as it stands the movie seems to make it just very clear that it's like oh no like his spirit's sort of possessing her absolutely no i get that i i go back and forth on it like part of me thinks that well there are almost always these kind of pov shots in a way not always but you know, it's like maybe that's how she sees herself. You know, she sees those hands. But other times it's like, no, I think the movie's trying to tell us that there's an actual physical transformation happening, which I think is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tad cheesy, but I'll allow it because it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's, it, it is fun. I mean, although this movie definitely is a bit more self-serious in a lot of ways, especially when you, it, it's a weird movie to double with Twins of Evil. Because Twins of Evil is, like, very fun and very kind of over the top, and, and it's just a good time. This movie is, like, pretty serious for the most part. Like, they, like it's fun in a, like, it's fun to watch a Hammer movie kind of way, but it, it isn't, like, outwardly, you know, fun. It, it, it's more intense and a little bit you know, in uh, serious in, in, in that regard. So I don't know how the two of them back to back would have played. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been, that would have 
been a strange double feature. That's a fact. But at the same time, you know what? Again, when it comes to this era of Hammer, one that's kind of like not looked at as fondly as, uh, you know, their heyday, damn it, this was two movies back to back that were pretty damn good. So, you know, hats off to Hammer at this point for knocking them out and, you know, still making great shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're following this up with uh, Dracula 80, 1972, which I will uh, I will say is a great movie. I love it. Oh, yeah. I know a lot of people don't care for it, but they're wrong. Oh, I like that movie quite a bit. I I think, you know, the more we get into this with the 70s slate, the more I'm kind of like, Hammer gets a bad rap for these movies, but a lot of these movies are, are pretty damn good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't change the fact that they weren't, like, successful. You know, I, I still think that, like, the right, you know, it makes sense that they weren't really connecting with audiences, but it's a shame because their content was still very strong and they were still churning out stuff that, that stands out and is worth revisiting. Absolutely. It, it just seems to me like when people regard the seventies stuff, the one thing that we hear about the most is satanic rites of Dracula. And it's like, okay, why are we focused on the worst thing that they made in that decade? Like why? Yeah, <laughs> that's not cool. Look at all of the other great shit that they made. Yeah. It wasn't one of your big two, but there's a lot of great stuff that they made uh, from the 70s on. You know, it's uh, I mean, we're winding down to some not great stuff. We are going to get to Satanic Rites at some point. We are going to get to The Devil of Daughter, which mm-hmm. I don't think is a bad movie, but it's it's neither still is a top tier Hammer. So but no, I, I man, I mean, this is part of why I love Hammer is that more often than not, they're still pretty damn great. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And when you compare what they were doing here to what they were doing sort of at the beginning, there is a bit of a through line. Like earlier, we kind of mentioned that this character, to me at least, is reminiscent of, you know, Baron Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll, you know, in their earliest films. And yet it, it, he, he feels a, like a bit of a evolution in terms of the study of what that character is capable of and what he thinks of himself. Like you mentioned, you know, this is a character that is a bit more self-righteous um, and that makes him perhaps, you know, more questionable, but maybe more relevant than like, again, putting a politician in the movie um as as a character that is villainous like it 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 maybe creates a more like a higher degree of relevance to the the viewer at that time um and uh, it feels a bit more modern in in that character's depiction than maybe some of the earlier stuff i would agree with all that and yet at the same time paul do you think you would agree with me in that you know this movie has a serious lack of um you know, just when it comes to Jack the Ripper, like the uh, the evening wear and the long postmortem knives and the big top hat, I just don't. You feel like Hammer could have given us a little more fan service, Let's make it a better movie, Let's get all fan oh, service. What are you doing? Hey, I'm trying to help you out. You're the one who wanted to talk about it. <laughs> I was just saying. When did what, fan- what is Twitter's topic of the day, Paul? I'm going to let you take it from here. Somebody was. Uh... Somebody was talking about um, the new Halloween movie and that like a lot of the reviews were complaining that it was mo- like, like, oh, this movie's just fan service and a high body count. And I heard that and I was like, well, 
the quote of fan service and a high body count basically describes the best sequels of that franchise. <laughs> <laughs> like you just described the very best that franchise has to offer. And I don't see why that's a problem. And it just made me wonder, like, cause I hear that a lot now, you know, the, the term fan service in a negative way. What, when did that become bad? And why is that bad? I guess is my question. So I think personally, I think it's some, you know, it's the game of telephone that Twitter indulges in, uh, especially when it comes to what they choose to be, you know, pissed off about on any given day. I think fan service can be a negative when it takes the place of solid storytelling. Whenever you look at a movie and say, hey, this movie indulges in fan service rather than telling a coherent story. Uh, yeah. OK, that's a bad thing. But uh, fucking hell, that must hurt. But what him kissing that 15 year old. Yeah, that that hurt too. Yeah, but you know, he, stab him he, with a he sword. deserves the sword in the hip. But you know what? That is that is a hell of a place to stab a guy. I mean, also, you know what? That seems incorrect. Like that sword seemed a lot longer, and they kind of just seems like they just ripped the handle off and glued that on him and didn't. Well, the last four inches were Wouldn't fake. The sword I think, and they're currently like stuck through him if it was that deep, though. Probably. Well, that's what I mean. Like it should be through him. Like it doesn't seem yeah. like it's long enough. The kiss was very inappropriate. Very yeah, I, it made me feel like super uncomfortable when I was, I was like, Ooh, 15, 17, whatever it's wrong. Um, but yeah, no, I and... think, I think whenever, as a result, the, the phrase fan service becomes seen as a negative because it was usually used in that context. But the problem is, is that you have people who latch on to that phrase, realize that it's usually used in a negative context, don't understand how it might possibly not be that. And then they start wielding it as though it's always a bad fucking thing. So when they yeah, see a bunch of characters pop up in a movie and they're like, Oh, they're bringing back older characters. And that means that it's fan service. And that means that it's bad. It's like, no, no, it, no, it, no, it doesn't. You fucking. And another thing is just like, well, it's just fan service and a high body count. I'm sorry. Have you seen the movie? Have you seen it yet? Do you want to maybe just wait? What the fuck? Like, I, well, I you know, I, what? I, keep, keep pissing and moaning about it. It's only going to make me want to see that movie more. Yeah. I, I would argue that fan service is an important component of any sequel. I think if you're making a sequel, part of your responsibility to your audience is fan service a little bit, because that's, that's what you're doing. You're, you're making a sequel to a movie. You're making a sequel to fan, you know, that, that should appeal to fans of that first film. And you're going to have to do certain things that will entertain them and reference the first film. I'm not saying just remake the first film, but you know, you're going to have to do it. And like Ghostbusters two is a good example of a movie that gets a lot of flack that I adore. I, I love Ghostbusters two. I do not, I will never in my life understand why people don't like that movie or why well, like even the, it's the best one. It's, it's so one. good. And so yet everyone's like, Oh, it's just fan service and it's garbage. And it's like, no, it's, it's amazing. And even like, you know, I know Bill Murray doesn't like it and shit and all these things. And the filmmakers kind of like wrote it off. And I'm like, yeah, it is in many ways it outperformed. Like it, it outdoes the first one in, in a lot of ways. Like the Vigo is way scarier than anything in Ghostbusters one, including well, the library. It, like the idea of it being a retread, it's not a retread. It, to me, it's the final copy of the rough draft. That was the first movie. Like, yeah, and it is, yeah. and it has fan service. It has moments that reflect on the first one. It has references to it. There's a ton of fan service in that movie, but it's good. It's it's all for the benefit of that film. I I, I think it's the best thing that's called Ghostbusters. Um, it's I, that movie is perfect. <clears throat> is my feeling. 
I, I think the the I yeah I mean I love the first one I love that one I even love the the remake I think I most every Ghostbusters movie that's come out I really like but I but that's just me but anyway um, can I ask you both what do you think he's taking here because you never quite see what he pops in his mouth arsenic <laughs> I it, I mean obviously it's meant to be a painkiller of some sort but it's like is it powder did he pop a pill like what the hell's going on there. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. What What is the motivation for that? Because like a, a pill isn't going to fix a stab wound. That's not how pills work. I do want to say that the method with which he removes that sword, I think, is really cool. I've never seen anything in a movie quite like that before. And uh, I love it. I do want to say we are at St. Paul's Cathedral right now, except <gasps> we're not. Uh, we <laughs> Apparently the production, and Paul, you watched the same documentary as I did Correct me if I'm wrong about this. They wanted to shoot at St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's Cathedral turned them down. Uh, so they actually snuck into St. Paul's <laughs> Cathedral, snapped stills of the Whispering Gallery, and then used those as back projection for the actors to shoot against. And I got to say, like, there, there are a couple of moments that sort of betray it. You know, when... Uh, um, uh, not Angarad, uh, but the other actor whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, when she reaches out to put her hand on the rail, like you can really tell then it's like, oh, they're not actually shooting in a physical location. Otherwise, looks pretty damn good. Yeah, you're right. It looks really good. Um, I will say when I was watching it, I could tell something was weird about it, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Like I was like, something's weird. With how they shot this, but I, I honest to God can't say what, and that's almost to its credit, you know, like I, I in that I couldn't tell why it looked weird, <laughs> like, cause it looks really authentic and lifelike, but, um, but yeah, there's a stillness to it, a weird sort of detachment from the characters that are moving about the scene versus the scene itself. Um, not CGI, but you know. A flatness maybe but actually in a way it almost felt like a stylized decision as opposed to a mistake yeah yeah i agree yeah it were i mean whatever it works ultimately i think yeah and, yeah it's good know. i really like it but yeah you're right that's how they did it <laughs> which is funny i love i love how like even even this far into hammer's run when they've had this like big like bfi retrospective done and like you know hammer's now starting to become this sort of cultural touchstone they still have to like sneak into cathedrals because they can't (laughs) shoot there and they're stealing sets from james bond movies and shit like it's like oh great like they like the more things change the more they stay the same (laughs) i love it i love it yeah it's just yeah it's sneaky and I, I enjoy that as big as they were at this point. That's 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 fun. Um, you know, it, as much as I like this movie and I do like this movie, I will say that like by the time we get to this point, I don't really give a damn about Pritchard's son or or his fiance. Like they they seem like swell people. I don't want to see bad things befall them. But when you get to the point where his son is riding with him in the carriage. Like, I feel like that should be the moment where the baton is passed from character to character. And instead it's, you know, I don't feel anything for that guy. And as a result, when he rushes to save the day, 
I, I don't really feel anything. Like, I don't care that much, you know? It's it's my heart is with Anna, and it kind of stays there. And I, I don't know that the movie intended that to be the case. Yeah. Do, I mean, do either of you ever care about his son? <laughs> no. You know? I feel like he's such a nothing character. I think that's probably one of my biggest problems with the movie is like it, he feels like he's supposed to be this bigger thing and he's just nothing. <laughs> I yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I like I, I like Laura. I like I already said, I think the fact that she's blind makes her at least a little bit unique in the story. But but they don't really give her much to do. And in the end, she's really just a a bit of an emotional pawn because she's an innocent. She's kind. There's no real like and we've seen lots of people have harm befall them, but they were all sort of character actors that were playing a bit larger than life. Right. Um, now it's like, here's more of a grounded person, you know. Oh, well, she's real. We can't see her die. Like, <laughs> and, and that's sort of the threat. Uh, but. It's a bit anticlimactic because at the same time, you know, she's not going to die. You know, you know, she's going to be OK. Um, and, and and because there's not really a dimensionality to her or her relationship with his son, there's less at stake. Yeah. And uh, do you know what's weird, though, is that I agree with all of that. And at the same time, like it. <laughs> He also figures into the film so little that I, Mr. Mustacheson, that I can't even get that angry about the fact that he's so poorly drawn. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not mad about it. I still really like the movie. Um, and certainly there, I mean, let's call it what it is. There are plenty of Hammer movies that have characters that don't go anywhere or that aren't really well drawn. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not unique to... Uh, hands of the ripper looking at you sister hod <laughs> looking at you yeah yeah isn't but... it interesting though in this final sequence we are we're in this cathedral and ultimately the final shot kind of in its own way like when we're on the high angle and we have anna and pritchard dead lying next to one another the way it's framed even even the the bit of action that leads up to that moment like it seems very much like kind of a renaissance painting like it's almost kind of like framed like the creation of adam a little bit am i the only one getting that i would agree i i think there's a painting element i actually think the backdrops help that too this whole sequence feels a bit like a painting this is really strong sequence i i still think it's freaky that we have no idea who that damn actor is um it is weird like, what is the, were they trying to pull a Karloff thing where in Frankenstein he was credited with a big question mark? Like, you know, maybe as a marketing thing, people went to the Jack the Ripper movie and didn't know who the hell Jack the Ripper was. Okay, fine. But at a certain point, it should come out, you know? He, pro and the fact he that probably wasn't, he probably wasn't Union. That's probably why they didn't credit him. Oh, that's an interesting point. That makes sense. And here she goes. And I don't even care that it's obviously a dummy. I don't care that we have a visible line. 
you know, guiding her to the floor. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, like, the, I don't care. It's pretty rough. Seriously, I mean, but you know what? Like, it, it it's yeah. and weirdly enough, I always use this uh, scene as an example. But like the end of uh, Ginger Snaps, it doesn't matter that the werewolf looks terrible when it's brightly lit at the very end. By that point, you're emotionally on the yeah. hook. Like you're you're there no matter what. And I feel the same way about this ending. Like I'm completely wrapped up in the tragedy of it all that I I don't even blink at it. The only thing that's weird about it is it's sort of, again, it feels like a romantic tragedy, like in the end. And that is weird because <laughs> she's so young. Yeah. And and like, I do feel like there's a romance there. Like, it's almost trying to like, e- like evoke like Phantom of the Opera in some ways. Where yeah, it's like see. there's this sort of backwards, maybe one sided. A romance that's ending in this sort of tragedy where one tried to help the other or vice versa. But I don't think it's, it's maybe emotionally earned that, but I still think it's, I think it's a big swing that I appreciate. Do uh, it might've already passed for you both. I pressed pause because we're at the end here, but did either of you, uh, <laughs> did either of you find the credits to be a little, a little rough? We have uh, Mrs. Wilson, Mr. Wilson, Rev Anderson, Catherine, first cell whore, second cell whore, first pub whore, second pub whore. It's like, it's, really? Couldn't, couldn't give them a name. They were actors, too. They deserve their credit. But shouldn't, uh, okay. Couldn't they Allie, have just credited Allie, them all as cell of whores? <laughs> I will, I, Allie, Let's I had heard this everyone. once before, and as an actor, please uh, provide your point of view on this. Like yeah. I had read somewhere, uh, it was in uh, maybe creative screenwriting where they said, "Hey, if you really want to do your eventual actors a favor, no matter how small the part, give them an actual name, uh, because then they're going to be able to use that on their resume, and it's going to look more attractive than, you know, guy in background." Yeah, or, for, you know. forever that and. I feel like ugh, I feel like I'm always having this this argument with uh, with indie film directors who want to make like an artsy film. And they're like, no, you're nameless. You're just like the girl in the movie. I'm like, cool. But when you credit me as girl, it makes me sound like I'm an extra. Yeah. <laughs> so like I am all for giving your characters a full name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Like, I, I mean, I don't know how much work first sell whore got after this movie but i mean is that is that something that you think that she would have been able to comfortably put on her resume after the fact because i just it it's i don't know it it seems like a weird choice to me yeah i feel like that's not one of the ones that goes in the resume that's just like i did that all right it's fine i worked on hands of the ripper <laughs> like the amount of background stuff that i've done where i'm like i'm never going to talk about this again it's fine I I played Farmer Joe in Oklahoma and in, in junior high, so I, I worked. Had a, I had a name. I worked on. It's Lust on every Vampire, resume I've ever. <laughs> and I think Damian Thomas looks nothing like Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> oh, it's it such a tired joke, James. I, mean, <laughs> I think how many and times we... did how many times did Jay Leno mention that in his mo- opening monologue when he was the late night show host i mean every day he was talking about that uh we have we have completed the circle 
we, we come all the way back around to the beginning. And I think there's Love no it. better place to call it than right here. Let's go ahead and wrap up. Overall, hands of the ripper, thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, palm down, flat, shaky handed, so so. Like, where, where do we land with this? I feel like we were all pretty positive. Yeah, I like this movie. Like, I went into it with, like, you know, very low expectations because the last bunch haven't been great. But this one was really good. I really dug it. Rock so, on. Paul, how about you? Uh, I really liked it. Yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, I've I've been I actually, like, kind of impressed with Hammer's 70s slate. Um, I mean, like, yeah, you've got, you've got, like, Lust for a Vampire in there. But, like, this was, this was pretty solid. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it had a cool sort of emotional thread to it. I thought it was a great take on Jack the Ripper in terms of Jack the Ripper movies. Like you mentioned earlier, it, it's towards the top of my list, if not at the top at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I really dug it too. I, I think it's a really strong outing for hammer. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It just, it, it further cements my, my love for them that they made it that late into the game without the, uh, the machine completely failing them. You know, uh, I, I think it's a strong, strong entry and, um, good on you hammer thumbs up. Great movie. Um, now I will say that, uh, <laughs> I might even be a little more excited for our next film. We are going to be talking Dracula AD 1972 next week. It is mm-hmm. going to be potentially with a full house. We will not say, uh, just yet, who uh, who might be guesting, but uh, there 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 are going to be a handful of us in here, I think, in the pub. So uh, I, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Very excited. Hmm. All right. Well, I tell you what. Let's go ahead and wrap up here, folks. Why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know uh, where they can find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Allie, go first. Okay. Allie, go. Um, you can. Find me on all the social medias at the Alley Chapel. And what is coming out for me? Uh, I guess the last feature that I was in, Knows You're Alone, is now streaming on Full Moon Features and on Amazon Prime, I believe. And like maybe 15 minutes ago, I got like a craving to make cookies. So while we were talking, I just tossed a bunch of cookies into the oven. And now I'm like staring at the timer. So it doesn't like go loud and be loud on the whole thing. <laughs> so what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Cookies. cookies. I want a cookie. Well, it's because I do that thing where I buy like, you know, those Pillsbury, like already cut cookies. You just have to like, yeah. the tr- I like do oh, that. Yeah, but I only yeah. make like two or three at a time because I limit myself. Oh, that's smart. I like that. Uh, doing now, I'm sorry if you hear a loud beep. <laughs> I love that you're multitasking during during these episodes. You're providing commentary. You're Instagramming. You're making cookies. Frankly, you're you're making Paul and I look kind of bad here. Hey, um, you're doing stuff. You're drinking and watching. Yeah. Ellie <laughs> <laughs> just makes us better people. In that's, that's that's fair. Her presence improves us. <laughs> Paul, how about you? I know you have some uh, Hammer Factory coming up soon at Bloody Disgusting. What's going to be the next title? Can you give us a preview? Uh, yeah. I mean, I just had one go up on um, X the Unknown, and then uh, next month, since it's October, I decided to do 
one of the bigger ones, one of my favorites. Uh, I'm going to be covering Brides of Dracula. Oh. Ooh. So that, that's been uh, an article that I've been kind of like ruminating on for a very, ever since Scream put it out. I was like, well, I know I'm going to have to write this. Uh, but it's one of my favorite Hammer movies, so I was kind of nervous to write it. You know, like when you write it, whenever I have to write about something I really love, I get a little nervous because um, I want to do it justice. And this Halloween is going to be interesting because I have several, I'm going to have several bloody disgusting articles about movies I really love um, going up. So I'm a little nervous about writing those, but I'm excited. So you you will see a lot from me in October. <laughs> Um, but one of those articles, the the only one I can really totally tell you about right now is uh, Brides of Dracula. But expect to see a lot. There's going to be a lot of podcasts. Um, oh, I'll, I'll I I don't think Nolan will care if I say we're going to do a big uh, Chucky episode of uh, Dead Ringers. So we're going to cover the entire franchise in an off topic. Oh, nice. Um, uh, do you leading all, do into you all... the new TV show. Do you all so... have a guest for that yet? Um, I think, well, are you in, I assume you're interested? I, yeah, I, I hate that I missed it before, uh, actually. I, I will see before, so. what I can do. I, I, <laughs> I imagine opening. we can make that work. <laughs> there's an opening and schedules permitting. I, I might love to talk some Chucky. I'm just saying yeah, that out. Yeah, Shame for sure, man. No, I, I, I'm, I know Nolan like really wants to get you back on. So, um, I will put in, I will let them know you're interested. Uh, but yeah, so we're, we're going to be doing a big Chucky episode. So I'm excited about that. Um, we have our carnival of souls, Messiah of evil episode coming up like tomorrow, I think. Um, so that should be cool. Um, I'm going to be guesting on episode of, uh, cobwebs in October. So th- there's going to be a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff coming for me. You keep an eye on my Twitter, uh, which is at the, uh, always modest handle at Paula's grade 2000. Rock on. All right. As always, thanks to you both for co-hosting and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much and have a great weekend.